Hi, listeners. This is the 80,000 Hours Podcast, where we have unusually in-depth conversations about the world's most pressing problems, what you can do to solve them, and why freshwater reservoirs will be the post-apocalyptic tinder. I'm Rob Whiblin, Head of Research at 80,000 Hours. I expect this interview is slated to become a fan favourite that people will be mentioning to me for years to come. It's information-dense, almost to a fault, and because Louisa and I are good friends, it's also particularly conversational. Louisa Rodriguez has conducted research at Rethink Priorities, the Future of Humanity Institute, and the Forethought Foundation, as well as for Wilma Caskell's upcoming book on long-termism. And I'm happy to say she has now brought her considerable intellect to the 80,000 Hours research team. We cover so much substance in this interview that it's worth giving you a sense of the structure at the outset, I think. The main question we are trying to address is whether a global catastrophe that didn't immediately cause everyone to die, such as, say, a particularly terrible pandemic, would be a temporary setback or would permanently curtail what humanity could ever accomplish. We discuss two different potential mechanisms by which this could happen. The first is that humanity quickly bungles its attempt at recovery, and so everyone remaining dies within decades. The second option is that humanity stabilizes things and persists for hundreds or thousands of years, but for some reason gets stuck and never manages to recover to the level of technology we have today, let alone anything better. Through the conversation, we try to give some thought to disasters that kill anywhere between 50% and 99.99% of people alive today. And we also want to envisage cases where most infrastructure is destroyed, as well as those where most infrastructure is unaffected. As you can imagine, all of this represents a vast question that requires us to draw on all the social sciences, on history, on engineering, on various bits of natural sciences, on war studies, and other fields besides. As a result, the conversation bounces between different considerations and historical anecdotes at a pretty rapid pace. A few times I refer to 99% of people dying, but then us quickly rebounding to where we are today as humanity being okay, which might be a little bit confusing, uh, not to mention uh, a bit morbid. To be clear, I am strongly against having a 99% chance of dying uh, in a global apocalypse. However, in this interview, we're taking a minute to look at things through the lens of humanity as a species that has already persisted through many past natural catastrophes for hundreds of thousands of years, rather than thinking about any of us as individuals. The last 25 minutes are something completely different because I ask about Louisa's fascinating personal backstory of reconnecting with her father who raised her as a small child but then disappeared from her life for over a decade. You'll be able to hear how much fun I had doing this interview and I hope it's almost as much fun for you in the audience. All right, without further ado, here's Louisa Rodriguez. Today, I'm speaking with Louisa Rodriguez. Louisa studied sociology and anthropology at Carleton College before doing a master's in sustainable international development at Brandeis University. After that, she worked in a series of global development roles, interning at GiveWell and Innovations for Poverty Action, before a stint as an analyst at the charity evaluator Impact Matters. She then switched focus, investigating various global catastrophic risks at Rethink Priorities and as a contributing researcher at Oxford's Future of Humanity Institute. She then moved on to the Forethought Foundation for Global Priorities Research, where, among other things, she has been doing research for Will McCaskill's forthcoming book, What We Owe the Future. But the best news is that last month she came to her senses and is joining us as a researcher here at the greatest place to work in the whole world, 80,000 Hours itself. Thanks for coming on the podcast, Louisa. Thanks so much for having me, Rob. Uh, I hope we'll get to talk about historical disasters and how hard it would be to survive in a post-apocalyptic world. But before that heartwarming stuff, what are you working on at the moment and why do you think it's important? Yeah, I well, so I just started 8,000 Hours about a month ago, and I've been working with Ben Todd to kind of revamp 80,000 Hours Key Ideas homepage. Um, we're hoping to make it more digestible, more appealing to readers, so that more people can get on board with our key ideas. Cool. Yeah. Uh, any uh, any early reactions to what 80K is like? Oh my gosh, <laughs> it's great. It's um, yeah. What is 80K like? 
I think I had this like image that ADK was this utopia where employees were really productive and really thoughtful and like cared a lot about their mental health. And it just is true. It's <laughs> <laughs> really productive and really thoughtful and really good at thinking about mental health. So very happy to be here. Yeah. What's the mental health stuff if, if you're willing mm. to talk about it? Yeah. 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 I guess, I guess I already had this experience working at other effective altruism organizations where like, it seems like people try to be open about mental health and like, especially supportive about taking measures to make mental health better. But I think more than anywhere, 80,000 hours is like my check-ins with my manager, Arden, are many of the questions are very targeted questions about things that relate to my kind of psychology in particular and things Mm. in particular I struggle with. So like one of my questions is like, are you finding any communications with a team member that you find intimidating, especially aversive right now? If so, let's send them a message together. And that's just like, yeah, I just get to be really open with Arden about things I find hard or scary or unmotivating. And Mm. that's very embedded into our communications and management. And then we just troubleshoot things much more quickly than I ever have at other places. Yeah, yeah. I guess we are it's not many workplaces where people talk about like what antidepressants they're on on Slack, right, like exactly. share recommendations and what drugs to take. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So like I have been switching antidepressants a bunch lately because they have lots of side effects. It's annoying to find the right one. And I just get to tell Arden like, this is the week I'll be on the new one. And it's going to be kind of hard for me because maybe I'll be nauseous. And Arden's like, great, you should work a bit less and then tell me when you're feeling better. Yeah. yeah. And that's just pretty... That's pretty special. Yeah, it's deep, deep pragmatism. Yeah. Um, yeah, I guess we've added to our um, meetings or my meetings with Howie. It's like a thing. Are you are you avoiding doing anything this week because you're scared of doing it? Because you, especially like things that you haven't done. <laughs> you've been, totally. I guess like a lot of people, I fall into this trap sometimes of I haven't done things for longer than I thought that I should. And now I hate to think about them. And so I just stop Absolutely. doing them. Yeah. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, fortunately, it's not like as much of an issue as it, as it used to be. But I think that's, I mean, maybe uh, it's good to be honest it. about it. Yeah, but, yeah, 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 exactly. And I do just find that there are really effective solutions. Like you have to like jump through the embarrassing hoop of being like, I'm avoiding this very small thing for a bad reason. (laughs) But as soon as you do, like Arden will just sit next to me and just hold my hand almost literally while I do the aversive thing. She's like, okay, let's just write the email to the person and I'm just going to watch you and I can even help you draft it if you want. And then it, it just like is solved mm. when like in your head it can be yeah. um, impossible. It'll never be fixed. Yeah. 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 I can't remember the last time, I guess Kieran's listening in. He might recall uh, sometime when I, I think I was just like, oh, I just can't bring myself to do this thing. Mm. And I think Kieran just did it. <laughs> yes, did it totally. Yeah. I'm all about trading aversive tasks. Yeah. Just yeah, yeah. like offering like, I'll my file time. your taxes yeah. and like <laughs> exactly exactly it's so yeah. much easier yeah yeah maybe someone else can do the call with like that annoying family member yeah, <laughs> just like, yeah exactly <laughs> just like pretend to be me yeah yeah so what's the story behind how you ended up in this paradisical like 80,000 hours <laughs> yeah yeah so I I like the story I'm proud of the story um I actually well so I was working in global development I guess, three and four years ago, right after graduating from university. And I had had read The Life You Can Save and a few other effective altruism books. 
and was super convinced that I should try to do the most good. And at the time, I was mainly convinced that I should do the most good to help people alive today, especially in poor countries. Mm. So I was for a while doing research for Innovations with Poverty Action, which does the randomized control evaluations of global poverty interventions. Mm. So I thought of myself as like a researcher in global poverty and then slowly became convinced of the arguments for long-termism. And basically, that was hard and scary because that meant maybe changing my whole career, but applied for advising from 80,000 hours. And I don't think I even did a formal advising call, but I did talk to Brenton Mayer, who had like some ideas for like ways to get experience, but mostly actually was just like, I think Rob Wiblin might want to hire researchers. <laughs> Do you want me to introduce you and see if he's hiring? And so he did. And I think I did some job tasks for you and then ended up trialing. I think this is three years ago now. Yeah. And then I was super new to long-termist research and to being actually professionally working on EA topics. And also I was just feeling really impostery during the trial. Mm. So it was a very stressful trial. And it sounds like... I was, I don't know, promising maybe, but clearly didn't have as much experience on the thing. And so I think you recommended I try to get research experience elsewhere mm. um, and, then and, and then maybe come back. So at the time I had a job offer for Rethink Priorities mm. and you suggested if I could do long-term research there, that might mm. be a good way to get experience. And so I tried that and yeah, I worked on nuclear security there and then while there, yeah, went to FHI, Future of Humanity Institute, and mm. did some of the collapse and recovery stuff there, and then did some of that for Forethought as well. And somewhere in there, I think you and Arden maybe like read these, up on these posts are good. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> maybe and we should have hired Louisa. <laughs> well, maybe not at the time, <laughs> yeah, but right. um, yeah. But so yeah, I guess kind of dream come true. Um, mm. You ended up writing, and a couple of years after I had originally trialed, you you made the job offer. So yeah. that was um, that was a year ago. And then I only just started because I think at the time you made the job offer, I had been RAing for Will, who was writing a new book on long-termism mm. and felt like doing that for a full year was a valuable thing to do. By Will, you mean uh, Will McCaskill, of course. Yes, yes. Yeah. Um, so I stuck with that. And now finally, three years <laughs> later, made it here. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. How do you feel about the decision to, to keep working on the, on the book? I mean, I definitely feel good. I think the book is hopefully going to be impactful and important and persuade lots of people of long-termism. Mm. And it definitely was like, I guess there was like clearly urgent stuff to be done at 80K. But yeah, I think me working on the book for that year, as opposed to like, Will having to scramble to hire someone new during a kind of very busy period when we knew we kind of worked really well together and yeah. um, that the 80K stuff could probably wait, mm. ended up feeling feeling kind of right. And then I also just think I, I think I'll learn a lot of 80K, but I think, I think I learned a ton about specific content matter mm. and got exposed to more different kind of flavors of long-termism. So I just feel like much better informed than maybe I would have if I'd just been 8K. I'm not totally sure, but... 
Yeah, I was sad you couldn't come come join right away, mm-hmm. but uh, I guess well, prepping for this interview, I've got to read some of the book, and I'm uh, yeah. I'm really enjoying it. It's uh, it's, it's very fun, and I, I think, think it might might well be a big hit. So that was probably a, a year well spent, uh, yeah. make, making it even better. Yeah, I hope uh, so. It seems, yeah, it seems like it would have been very hard for Will to find someone <laughs> at your level. Well, uh, yeah, and who's already like deep in the deep in the topic. Uh, yeah, yeah. We, and we, I think we Will and I left him in the lurch. Right. Yes, I think we knew we worked well together, and we just had momentum, and mm-hmm. I'm glad we kept that going. All right. So the big thing we're here to talk about is this series of articles you've written, I guess, in part, but not exclusively for for the book that Will's writing on the probability of humanity ultimately recovering and and building back from a serious collapse of civilization. Yeah, not many people have, as far as I know, kind of considered that in a sober way. It seems like an area where there's a lot of loose talk and maybe not a lot of hard talk. Yeah. How did you first get into this topic? Yeah, yeah, exactly. I got into the topic because after thinking about nuclear war, where I kind of, I'd done this big project thinking about whether a nuclear war would cause a nuclear winter and whether a nuclear winter could cause human extinction. Mm. And I ended up feeling like it causing human extinction was pretty impossible. It's just like really hard to tell a story of how that actually happens. Mm. Yeah, or I guess it still seemed bad to me if nuclear winter caused civilizational collapse. Mm. But then even when I reflected on that, collapse isn't necessarily as bad as human extinction, Mm. at least on its face. And then I realized I actually just had no idea if it was as bad as human extinction. I didn't know if it would necessarily lead to it. I didn't know if it was completely implausible that it would lead to it. And then it just started to feel like this gaping hole in a lot of these global catastrophic risks that get you part of the way to extinction. Lots of people die and it's horrible. But I couldn't find any really plausible stories, at least right away, for thinking that it was as bad. And then that felt like maybe a reason to prioritize it a bit less. And so I guess Will and I had talked a bit about nuclear stuff and we talked a bit about this in part because he was kind of forming some of his views in preparation for his book on long-termism, where I guess whether civilization could recover from collapse but not an extinction event felt important to him in trying to figure out what to actually recommend long-termist work on. Okay, yeah. So I guess he had to figure out how worried to be about things like nuclear war or I guess very bad climate change or I suppose even like a massive traditional war or something like that. Yeah, exactly. Uh, Because... Yeah. So this question has flitted around for a while, as far as I know. People have been like, hey, if half of people died in a pandemic, would that lead to the collapse of civilization? Right. And be like, I guess it doesn't seem like it would. And then they'll chat about it at lunch. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> uh, and then that's kind of the level that it will get to. And people will be like, yeah, I don't really see why it would. And I guess you can push it on further. Like, what if 99% of people died in some sort of pandemic? Like, would we rebuild? And it seems like, yeah, it doesn't seem like there's any reason why we wouldn't. But that, yeah. was, <laughs> that was the... Yeah. <laughs> it wasn't going beyond, like, lunchtime conversation very much. And then finally, uh, this, this provided the opportunity for someone to spend, like, actual months looking into this and thinking through the different the different issues at stake. Yeah, I think that's right. I have a feeling that some people kind of thinking about grant making an EA, I think they had worked out views on this, but mm. I've, I'd never seen any and they didn't feel public and maybe they didn't feel well organized. So it felt like at least some of some value came from this thing being like organized and a I don't know if I'd say linearly, but organized a bit more (laughs) and um, put in a public place that people could talk about it. Yeah. So what, when you started looking into it and I guess asking people, Mm -hmm. did you have, did they have a Google doc about this? Yeah. What was kind of the state of the literature? Yeah. I never got a Google doc shared with me. I did interviews with people who think a lot about global catastrophic risks Mm -hmm. to see if there just were like common stories 
And yeah, I guess I guess I got plenty of people like putting hypotheses forward, but no one pointing at papers or even mm. like internal docs. And then there are like a couple of pieces of the puzzle that had been published, actually just mostly outside of EA. So, yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, I'm kind of curious to know. What, what, I mean, yeah. I would think that almost most of the conversation about this would be outside of the existential risk and like effective altruism communities, just because we're very yeah. small. <laughs> yeah, right, right, much? right. Yeah. yeah. So there was some about climate change mm. and like whether climate change would cause collapse. But again, it all felt very speculative. Like mm. it felt like usually the best or like not the best I found was like think pieces like new scientist level not exactly like, exactly okay, yeah. like people like I guess saying plausible things but no one having much evidence other than their like intuitions or something yeah there's the knowledge right this, yeah uh, so that guy, was yeah. I think one of the coolest things I found which is like again just a piece of the puzzle so with the knowledge um by Lewis Dartnell did was just assume that there was a catastrophe where I don't remember exactly if he assumed a certain percentage of the population died, but he assumed that infrastructure was left standing. I think maybe he hypothesized it could be something like a pandemic where Mm. potentially billions of people died. He kind of like lays out this catastrophe scenario. And then the rest of the book is basically going through all the pieces of information individuals and groups would need to have to rebuild. Mm. Um, First, very basic needs. So basic forms of agriculture. Yeah. Yeah. How to purify water. Yeah. Mm. Just like survival. And then goes progressively through like, how do we get to the rudimentary versions of the technologies we have today? So it even goes to like, how do you make fertilizer using certain types of rocks and chemistry? Mm. So it's like, it ends up kind of giving you the information you'd need that's kind of beyond survival, but also pre-industrial. I mean, it's mainly, I think, just meant to be very interesting. Mm. But I think theoretically, he liked the idea that if someone found it in the post-catastrophe <laughs> society, or if someone they had intentionally, handy. you know, put mm. it somewhere, people would at least survive. Or maybe in addition to that, be able to recreate photography and mm. other rudimentary technologies. Yeah. It seems like the kind of question where, I don't know, I feel like if I ask someone random on the street, do you think that like any academic, like some mm-hmm. researcher somewhere has spent a lot of time looking to this question of if 99% of people died in a war or pandemic or whatever, that humanity would rebuild? It's like a glaringly obvious question, <laughs> especially you would think during totally. the Cold War or something like that, yeah. uh, when people were talking about nuclear winter. But it seems like it's just kind of fallen through the cracks a bit. I guess there's no university department for like disaster apocalypse studies yeah. that sounds a bit silly to them somehow. And it's like no one's particular responsibility. It's not the earth sciences people's responsibility or the physicists or the engineers even. Yeah. Yeah, that's a really good point. I did come across, I think it's Princeton has a kind of interdisciplinary working group that has conferences every once in a while. The acronym is P-I-I-R-S. Mm. It's definitely trying to think about collapse studies and it Mm. brings in physicists, um, but it is one, just not at all very practical. Mm. And two is, I think it's not actually thinking about reasons collapse might lead to extinction. It's more like, might the power grid go offline if there's like a certain level of war or pandemic or something? Mm. And yeah, I guess it's more on this question that is like, what kind of catastrophe would cause a collapse and not on whether humanity would survive Mm. or recover from a collapse itself. 
I see. More focused at the first step. And then yeah, exactly. Like, less, and yeah. then just like nothing on the second that I found. Yeah, I guess there's not much business value in it, is there? Like, I guess yeah. you have like lots of Goldman Sachs, like right. business analysts trying to figure out like what companies are good, but there's just not much money to be made, I guess, in forecasting what would happen after all of the bank accounts are empty. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And just like, it is really intractable. I mean, it's not mm. totally intractable, but it's hard to like... You feel a bit lost, I suppose, yeah. if you're used to more rigorous things. Uh, yeah, yeah, it is. Yeah, I imagine a physicist being like, I don't know how concretely <laughs> I can say very true things about this. Yeah. I'll just be guessing. I feel like economists might, <laughs> might have the boldness and the arrogance to, <laughs> to comment on it. Yeah, um, yeah, maybe that, That's true? Or did, did economists have much to say? Or not especially? Not really. Okay, no. Oh, well. Yeah. <laughs> um, do you reckon there's classified military stuff? Because, I mean, the US government has this interesting continuity of business plan where they're trying to figure out, like, if Washington, D.C. is wiped off the map, where are they going to send everyone to keep doing their business? I think, like, a very high priority for them is getting people to pay taxes again very quickly, which is right? quite funny, but because it yeah. is necessary. So, Yeah, yeah. I wouldn't be surprised, especially Cold War era. And mm. then I would guess that it kind of bottomed out at the level where you still have governance. Mm. So maybe they're, like, really going to be trying to tax people again quickly. But if you, as some people think you might lose that level of governance, then I would guess like... It's not, not a plan. It's not. Or, yeah, yeah, yeah. They're not planning for like when there's no leadership. Yeah, when will, we're back to pre-industrial, like when we're back to agricultural, subsistence agriculture. Exactly, exactly. Then what should the former Americans <laughs> who are no longer uh, yeah. members of a state do? Yeah, I mean... It's super interesting, right? So, so the, I had the sense that there's tons of fiction or like lots mm. of science fiction stuff on right. this, which is like some of it might be a bit harder and some of it might be a bit more fantastical. But I guess like, yeah, have, have the creative writers maybe done the most cutting edge research on this? I think probably. I mean, to be fair, it's like any work on this will be kind of imaginative by its nature. So that probably is just some of the best work that can be done. Mm. And these are some of the people best at imagining Kind of like weird worlds. Yeah, 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 exactly. So yeah, there's plenty on it. It's very interesting. I did like I read sci-fi about post-apocalypse. What's, what's what's good? Ooh, what's really good? Um, it feels like you want something like The Martian, where it's like actually trying to figure. Yeah, someone who has engineering experience. Yeah, exactly, exactly. I mean, I actually think this is not sci-fi. But I think the knowledge was he is like a chemist and physicist, mm. Louis Dartnell. So I think he really was coming at it from a scientific perspective. But so I definitely had some books that I really liked. I don't know that any of it felt like, oh, yeah, this is what would happen. Finally. Yeah. yeah the they've, answer. They've solved it. Yeah, yeah. Um, but I mean, The Road is very oh, yeah. dark. Um, yeah, I decided not to watch that. Yeah. <laughs> I just want to watch happy things. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I used to like this topic more until okay. <laughs> until, yeah, I started having to think about the fact what it would be this, like yeah, yeah yeah and like yeah what what in the road are there any insights that you can remember that are fun to mention because it focuses a lot on food access right yeah yeah it does which is i think common and like mostly what comes up when people actually like really try to think of ways or like how how extinction happens hmm. i don't know if there's anything particularly fun from the road okay, sorry. <laughs> um a broad sense of fun yeah yeah very broad sense of fun yeah interesting yeah so basically in lots of fiction about post-apocalyptic worlds, one of the main drivers of plot is conflict between groups. And I guess it's just not as interesting a book to read about people slowly starving to death. Mm. Um, where, Cooperatively. Like, yeah, or, exactly, exactly. Like all guess, trying to... 
Well, the happier story would be like people banding together to make bigger groups in order to cooperate, in order to reestablish right. agriculture. Where you're like, well, the society. more people, like the more agriculture we can do and the more we can specialize. Right. Which I guess could be interesting, but it's like that, it sounds like a harder book to write than a story about people fighting. Yeah, it definitely has less obvious plot dynamics and ways yeah. to draw people in. All right. Well, yeah, enough about fiction. We're going to try to do better than that. Uh, get, get, get onto the substance of these uh, of these different kind of sub-questions that you tried to get through. So, yeah, I guess in part we want to like share some of the historical examples that, that you've dug up and like various other considerations that people have raised that you've tried to be like, you know, really, is this right? Like what, what actually is it when you when you think about this more analytically? But so you've worked on this for about a year, right? Yeah, about a year, half time. Yeah. So it's not, this is like not the, not the most exhaustive possible research project that someone could do. And, uh, and hopefully not. other people will come along and do more. Yeah, exactly. But it seems like the broad story is you've gone out looking for stories that people could tell, like some explanation for why these things would cause us to go extinct and kind of come up a bit empty. You just keep finding that they're not that persuasive. The narrative isn't, isn't that compelling. And so you're not saying it's impossible that this stuff would happen. You're just like, no one's explained why. So it's yeah. a bit of a like, and un- like the unknown unknowns are maybe the thing that is most problematic. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. A couple of things seem like the most likely options, but mostly like, especially surprising to me was the fact that the really common explanations people would give, like starvation, violence, just never ended up. I was like, okay, let me just concretely make this into mm. a into a story. Mm. And there's there, it just felt like there's no story that made any sense. It, it falls apart in your hands. Yeah, yeah. exactly, exactly. Um, I guess my hope is that people will listen to this and come away with a sense that, well, it seems like lots of people have been scared away from this topic mm. from the fact that not many people have, have looked into it. Yeah, exactly. Maybe they thought it, so maybe at least some of them thought it was a hopeless enterprise that how can you think about something that's so different from what we have now? But I think like reading your stuff, I'm like, no, people can think about this. Uh-huh. <laughs> you, like you can interrogate the specific claims that people make or like think about these stories. And sometimes it's just sufficiently clear that they don't make sense that you can make progress or at least like your forecasts of things can move up and down pretty substantially with some sort. Yeah, that is how I felt. I definitely, like you said, don't feel like I settled any of these questions, but I at least felt like I went from, I don't know, some of these things seem plausible to like, you can force it if you want, but most of the explanations I was coming up with didn't feel so solid that I felt like I could even endorse the previous position I had, which was Mm. like, maybe. So I think I at least moved from like, maybe, who knows, to like, I don't know. <laughs> like, yes. sure, maybe in this, in like, in a way that, like you said, can't is unknown unknowns. Yeah, oh, exactly. Yeah. Can't rule anything out. Yeah, yeah. Um, but everything I've come up with feels like, feels kind of flimsy. All right. Well, with that in mind, what sort of different disasters did you analyze? Yeah. So I found that it did kind of matter the type of disaster that you're talking about to how, well, one, how likely it is that civilization would even collapse, but then also to how likely it is that civilization would recover from collapse. So I tried to take a few examples, I mean, just to keep the scope narrow enough to even think about, that got at some of the key parameters or something of a catastrophe. Yeah. And I I didn't quite hit all of the ones I wanted, but the main three I considered were a scenario where 50% of the population dies, like you can imagine it as a pandemic. So you have high population loss, not extremely high, but much higher than, for example, COVID, but then no loss of uh, physical infrastructure. Physical infrastructure, the houses exactly. are still here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And aside from the fact that maybe 
well, basically like the climate is the same and like there are kind of no lasting environmental effects too. Mm. So that's kind of one case where you're just like toggling, toggling up and down on population death. Mm. Another that I thought about was adding in infrastructure damage. And because nuclear war seems like kind of a plausible catastrophic risk. Mm. I went ahead and just tried to think about nuclear winter in particular. So for that one, I thought the parameters would be something like maybe 90% population death through both kind of the initial war and then famine in the very immediate aftermath of the nuclear winter. And then I also thought there'd be something like five to 10 years of environmental effects, Um, Mm. but then those would go away. So that was another one. And then the last one I thought about was I was trying to come up with basically a set of catastrophes that might make the story look worse. And yeah, for the the thing that I've actually written up and posted, I ended up thinking about nuclear war and biological weapons. And so in that scenario, I ended up assuming that population death would be much higher. So 99.99%, um, which I think leaves you with 800,000. Okay. So 800,000 people left left. globally. Yep. And then I also, yeah, still, you still had the infrastructure damage and you still had the environmental effects that were temporary. And so that was one of the worst cases I could think Mm. of. And then one that I've kind of thought about since writing publicly about the topic. So maybe a fourth one is what happens if you have a nuclear war that kills lots of people, but then you also have climate change or like climate Mm. effects that do last for a really, really long time Mm. on the order of like not a decade, but thousands of years. Yeah. So yeah, those are the, the kind of main like parameters I see being important ended up being how many people die, whether like stuff is left standing, so infrastructure is standing, whether there are environmental effects and how long all of these effects kind of last. Yeah, nice. So I guess, yeah, so there's, I guess, the number of people dead, there's the infrastructure destruction, and there's like, how long is the environmental damage lasting? Yeah. I guess, yeah, that, that adds a lot of permutations, and we can't, <laughs> I guess, exactly. in, in, in your essays, uh, various documents, you like go through all of these and think about the various different kinks of each one, but well, we can't be quite as thorough here, so we have to yeah. be a little bit more broad, broad sure. brush, but I guess people can go away and read uh, read the documents that we'll link to if they if they want to like be more precise. Uh, don't, don't at me. Um, <laughs> are there any kind of facts about what the world would look like after some of these disasters that are non-obvious, that are kind of useful to keep in mind when we're visualizing the situation that people would face? Yeah, yeah, I do think there are a few. So kind of regardless of the scenario, a thing that kept coming up as important was the fact that catastrophes will kind of inevitably be non-uniform in their effects. Hmm. So I guess if you have a catastrophe that's so big that it's actually uniform in in its effects, and it's really severe, it's going Mm. to kill everyone. So Mm. that would be like, a catastrophe like an asteroid that actually really impacted the earth or maybe actually like it's like even bigger than the one that killed yeah. the dinosaurs or something like that yeah, yeah yeah so that is one where you can imagine having consistent mortality rates everywhere consistent climate effects everywhere but for the catastrophes that interest us so the ones that don't actually kill everyone at once but leave some survivors the reason that happens is because the catastrophe is going to have non-uniform effects. And I think for lots of catastrophes, they could just be very non-uniform, where like you might get some entire continents that are much, much less affected than others, both in terms of population death and in terms of climate effects. So an example in nuclear winter that's kind of well known is you have some continents where agriculture becomes near impossible. And then you have others where it's like 
maybe even a bit better. Mm. Because if it's not, colder or? Because it's colder mm. and otherwise was too hot for agriculture. I see. Before, um, yeah. yeah. And that's like probably mostly you wouldn't get better. You'd just get... Um, <laughs> it wouldn't be quite get, like, as devastating as elsewhere. It would still, yeah, be possible. Mm. And then you get the same for pandemics. Maybe in pandemics, it's more for like political reasons, but like uh, yeah. even thinking about the COVID variation. Well, I guess you have islands, right? Or yeah, exactly. About, you know, New Zealand islands or I guess great. like other small islands. I, I guess... If something's very contagious, it could be quite hard. But that's the case where maybe it would be more uniform. But you'd think in a scenario where half of people were dying of a disease that, at least if it was a respiratory disease, we've kind of learned that if you're willing to be insanely strict about exactly. like, um, forcing people to stay at home, then it seems like you can suppress a disease. And people would be very motivated to stay at home, like maybe almost right. to a fault. Potentially, it could be problematic that people are unwilling to go out and do anything. Yeah, exactly. Like if you make a couple of assumptions about the type of pathogen, it's just really hard to get the kind of transmission rates to stay high enough to really keep killing people. Given that people will respond. Uh, yeah, exactly. Yeah. And I guess also people thin out, right? After, so that's, that's one it. problem that the disease you just starts won't facing. Is... encounter as many people if it's yeah. a human to human transmissible. So this is why you, I guess you get to the case where 90% of people are dead. And then I guess we've just seen this with other pandemics, even very contagious ones that they tend to yeah. burn out after a while. And I guess we've never had actually had a pandemic. Well, it was the very worst was all of the diseases going to the Americas. Yeah, exactly. Uh, where I think we don't know exactly how many people died, but it wasn't more than 90%. No, I think there are some high estimates that are maybe as high as 90%, but mm -hmm. they're for like communities. Um, uh, rather than the for. whole continent. Yeah. So I think for some islands, mm -hmm. um, they might've been that high. And even then the data we have on that is is just horrendous. Yeah. And I guess with, with nukes as well, uh, so Europe <laughs> would, be, yeah. would be in a pretty bad situation in London, but uh, New pretty Zealand, bad. again, there's, there's damn New Zealanders. They, I know. <laughs> they'll be having a great time. Well, They've got it all. Yeah. 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 So they'll be, they'll be fine with the pandemic. They'll be fine from the nuclear war. Some... Yeah. One of the other scenarios is like, conventional war i guess we can consider that almost just a subset of the nuclear war it's like not I think as bad so yeah yeah i think different types of climate change oh yeah will kind of change. be differentially mm. affecting i guess yeah even so people talk about how climate change could potentially be good for siberia or for yeah places that are really north far north and very, far south um, yeah very cold and so again i guess new zealand might be all right <laughs> yeah uh or new i guess zealand like otherwise russia really might good be. okay yeah, yeah. Too. well in some of them in some yeah, sometimes Russia does well, sometimes it doesn't. But, okay. but I guess, so this non-uniformity is super central if you're thinking about will it kill 100% of people? Because uh, even if there's just like 1% of people living in some place that's largely unaffected, then that basically answers the question for you. Exactly. And I think sometimes it's slight non-uniformity that makes a bit of difference, maybe isn't decisive. So like with nuclear winter, you'll have some areas that are cold and some areas that are slightly less cold. But some, I think, catastrophes would cause extremely non-uniform effects where, like, even if you had really, really enormous population losses and kind mm. of actually the collapse of society and mm. political systems and, yeah, all of these systems that we think of as critical collapsed on one continent, I think you might see society continue on others. Hmm. And I think that's something that I didn't intuitively have in my head when I first started thinking about this, is just some places might really be, be kind of unfazed. Right. Um, yeah. Thinking about New Zealand again, because I guess it just, mm -hmm. just, I suppose there's also Tasmania. Are there any other things that we should have in mind? I guess it's like Pacific Islands. Pacific Islands. Yeah. I think depending on the thing again, in some scenarios, you really want coastlines mm. because um, Fish fishing mm. is is like a key source of food. So like Chile looks kind of good in, in a couple of scenarios. I think those are the main ones. So 
Let's maybe focus on the nuclear winter one first. So you get like massive nuclear exchange. I guess like in order to really get the worst cases, we have to imagine sometime in the future when there's many more nukes on high alert than is currently the case. Because where I guess compared to the Cold War, there's like I think a tenth as many nukes, maybe even less than that on like high alert to actually be used. Yeah. Uh, because there's been various agreements. Yeah, I think there were something in, in like 70,000 range mm. and now there's something in the 10,000. Yeah. Oh, 10,000? Oh, I think, I think worldwide. Be, oh, okay, right, yeah. US, yeah. it's something like 2,000 yeah, um, yeah. and Russia too. Okay, so like a worse nuclear war than would be possible right now. Mm-hmm. I, in that case, as I understand it, the kind of the dust or all of the stuff they're worried about causing the nuclear winter doesn't spread very easily to the Southern Hemisphere, right? It kind of like maybe a bit trickles down there, but it's a lot less. And I suppose also if you're a coastal area or a place that has a lot of water around, then your temperature change is like much reduced because you have this stock of something that doesn't change temperature very easily and it keeps you at about the same level. Yes. Yeah, that's that's exactly right. And how much would New Zealand suffer from the inability to import stuff? I, like, I guess they don't have an oil industry, right? And so their cars might stop working or they won't be able to get replacement computers, I suppose. So that could be awkward. Yeah. So very specific things like computer chips that are only made in some places, especially will be impossible to get. And then probably things like, yeah, like fossil fuels will be harder for them to get. I tried to make kind of a predictive index that Mm. looked at a bunch of different features or like facts about a country or a continent and like score them on how good they looked. And one of the criteria was whether they were net importers or net exporters. And New Zealand was quite net importing. Mm. um, So that did make it look worse. Australia is very net exporting. Oh, what kinds of things? Well, I guess coal, right? Uh, So that's a lot of coal. Yeah, plenty of coal. And they net export food. So Mm, um, I would think I was especially interested in like some very basic necessity Mm. things to start. And Australia is great on... A bunch of them. A bunch, including... Yeah, they also are like net exporting on different energy sources. Mm. Oh, Australia doesn't have much oil, right? But I guess it has gas. It does have gas. gas. I see, yeah. I don't know actually about oil, but... Okay. Do we have any indications of, like, would the New Zealand political system hold up? Would we still have uh, Prime Minister Jessica Arden in the post-apocalyptic hellscape? Oh, great question. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, that would be, I would be musing about that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I can try. If if you want to, yeah, yeah. I I I don't know, my intuitive thing is, like, I'm not sure why not. Uh, Yeah, Yeah, exactly. I mean, it would be, I think, in the population's interest to, like, continue to be supported by the state and all the things the state provides, including yeah. like defense to other countries. Mm. And then also, I don't know if it's like maintaining infrastructure, but like, yeah, all of the things that keep things going, yeah. like the state is so involved that mm. people should want it to exist. And so I guess the main reason I think it might fall apart is like if they were invaded. I see. Oh, um, interesting. So other people wanted to come to New Zealand because it's so good. That's all that's coming to mind. What about yeah. you? Yeah, I mean, it seems like during disasters, I guess, especially in the situation with New Zealand, when you're like, well, we're still fed and things are still running and like nobody in particular has died. We just don't have imports. And now we're going to have like a very rough time for like right. many decades, possibly centuries as like the world rebuilds. Right. It seems like in that kind of situation, people tend to pull together. If anything, it's like you could see it like improving, right. <laughs> improving like approval ratings and like people's right. interest in like coordinating. Yeah. You'd uh, think if if everyone knew that the status quo was in their favor, hmm. where like everywhere else in the world was doing terribly, but they'd like managed to keep things together it would be not in their favor to like try to mix things up. But like, I suppose maybe if leadership were seen as doing something really irresponsible, Mm. 
maybe they'd get opposition. But even then, it seems like maybe there'd be a transition of power. But like, it's hard to imagine New Zealand. Yeah, what's being... the coup? Or like, why, why yeah. do people support a coup? Or yeah, yeah, like an um, actual. Or like, or I guess disintegration is more troubling. Uh, but again, it's yeah. Yeah, maybe there'd be a coup, and like, no one would be that excited about a bunch of violence. Hmm. Like, so either work and hopefully not be super violent or not but disintegration like you said it seems really hard to imagine why anyone would support action yeah because yeah, it's just like they're in a reasonably good place yeah yeah okay all right so this was all under the umbrella of non-uniformity of the, of the impacts yeah. yeah are there any other kind of important salient facts that people should keep in mind yeah i think kind of still under that umbrella but a bit more specific so some types of things that might stick around depending on the catastrophe. So there are like food stocks in different countries. The US is known for having a lot. Lots of countries have food stocks and that's like grain in grain silos. And there are also, you have all sorts of infrastructure that has goods that will be sitting in it and some of them will rot, but some of them won't. So you'll have kind of if you're in a scenario where you have infrastructure, which I think some places would when you have this non-uniformity, mm. then at least some populations will still just have access to like to stuff, maybe not to like ongoing production of stuff, but to some stuff. Okay, so we've got food in supermarkets, we've got food in the warehouses that supply supermarkets, I guess we have food in the fields that's potentially yeah. still growing or could be could be harvested. Yep. So have, uh, you know, livestock that are still alive. Yeah, what, what other kind of supplies do we have? Yeah, so there are like really basic ones. It gets kind of specific, but if you have grocery stores, you have access to either actual yeast colonies or like alcohol with yeast in them. And that helps you if you if you were just trying to make your own yeast, oh, okay. um, that would be kind of hard. But if you wanted to make bread eventually, oh, okay, um, right. then yep. you'd have access to places where you could get yeast or even things just like warm clothes. Clothes mm. do wear out very quickly. And mm. if it's really cold, you want, you want to, to wear be a able lot to clothes, get, yeah. get durable and warm clothes. Mm. Um, like all sorts of things can be used to purify water. Yeah, what, what, what do you use to purify water? You can use iodine tablets, which mm. you can get in like some kind of specific places, but you can also build your own water purification systems. Mm. You can even just leave clear plastic bottles in the sun for long enough, okay. and that will kind of work until the water bottle starts to degrade. I see. So can, can, can you use a normal water bottle for that? Can I go grab a, like a bottle of Coke and empty it out and then fill it with water and stick it in the sun? I think that the answer is yes, for a bit okay. and then if you use it for very, a really yeah. long time you'd start to maybe get yes. cancer okay. yeah, okay. <laughs> um, that, that, that's tomorrow's wrong exactly problem. exactly yeah, okay. you'll already have cancer from the radioactive fallout <laughs> yeah um okay so we've got the, the water stuff clothes food i guess a super salient thing here is how many survivors are there because if totally it's yeah it's a funny one where i guess you get this balancing thing where if like almost everyone's dead then they've got an enormous amount of stuff Exactly. Use. And if almost everyone's alive, then I guess you have a lot more resources to try to keep producing stuff. Yeah. But your stockpile is not going to last very long. Yeah. Which you, I think is just like, was a really interesting emergent finding is like number of survivors really does interact in a kind of funny way with other things where, yeah, I think this applies to things beyond just like supplies left. So supplies left is a good example where if you have lots of survivors, the supplies go very quickly. But then on the other hand, if you have lots of people dying, which would be terrible in some respects and makes it a bit harder to rebuild industry and harder to make sure that you 
well, ideally that you'd keep some of the necessary knowledge and skills you'd want to at least eventually rebuild industry. Mm. When you, yeah, when you are down to tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of people, it's like less guaranteed that you'll keep all of those skills. And so you just get these kind of trade-offs. And I think mostly I felt like it worked in favor of survival, Okay, so this kind of relates to this concept that you have called the grace period, which I think you got from the knowledge, right? Yeah, 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 I did. So I guess the grace period is this temporary time after some disaster where a bunch of people are now dead, but I guess you still have, you have this overhang of supplies from the the pre-apocalypse world and... I guess other things like cars or around like other infrastructures. This like potentially helps you to stick around and and then rebuild. Yeah. Do you want to elaborate on that? Yeah, sure. Yeah. So again, it's kind of depends on the catastrophe, but at least in some places, in most catastrophe scenarios, you have maybe all of the infrastructure that you did otherwise. You have a power grid that still exists, even if it's not working. You have grocery stores with food in them. You have, you even have petrol stations that still have petrol in them Mm. and that you can siphon out pretty easily. So you have things that mean that you can kind of survive in a reasonably easy and accessible way. And just how long that period lasts, again, depends on how many people there are. But I think you'd be kind of surprised how much stuff you can still access with the limitations being like the power grid will stop working. But like even water will still run for at least a while and even maybe for a long while in some places where the water supply isn't run by electricity and gravity. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So I guess you face, yeah, so the so the more people you have, the, I guess, more people you have to try to rebuild stuff, mm-hmm. uh, but the less supplies you have per person. And then yeah. like the reverse in the other case, if most people are dead, then you're uh, potentially short of like the expertise perhaps that you might right. need to get things running, but the grace period is longer. Is longer. Yeah. yeah is exactly. it more of like giving a sense of like how, how long it is or like what kind of stuff might we run out of first? So if you have 50% population loss, I think that theoretically... If you actually allocated all of the food and water, kind of literally rationed it, mm. then it would only last days, like mm. under a week. Oh, wow. Um, really? So that's if This is you, supermarket food or something. This is supermarket food and grain stocks. Really? Um, oh, yeah. so little. Okay. Yeah. I mean, lots of countries have them and some countries don't. And mm. so if you actually just divide like the US, China, some of the really big food suppliers, like over everyone. Yeah. We used to have many more or like a much greater volume of food stocks than we do now, especially Mm. during Cold War, kind of unsurprisingly. Mm. But currently, lots of countries have about six months of grain reserves, and then lots have basically none. Mm. And so it seems to come out to a week or a couple of weeks for for grain. Okay. But I guess, so that means that then if you have a situation where 99% of people suddenly die, then now you can last years with that kind of food. Yeah. So it's years if you make a few assumptions about how you prioritize the ordering, basically, in which you eat things. Mm. So you'll like have to consider perishability. And at some point... It seems point, like people would do that. It seems to like some they extent. would. Yeah. yeah. I mean, in the first couple of days, they'll probably like... Eat whatevs. Go into the pasta before the like tomatoes, which mm. would be a mistake. But um, <laughs> it will probably not be the, the factor that determines whether they survive the catastrophe. Mm. Um, but it's basically like eat the perishables first. And then at some point, 
in the year's timescale, things rot and you mm. can't eat them anymore. So that's okay. actually the limit you hit before just like food per person. Right. In the in the scenario where lots of people are, yeah. Most, most people, people have died yeah, and there are like thousands of survivors left. Like at some point, the grain will just not be edible anymore. Huh. Is there anything you can do to make it last a lot longer? Stick Great it question. somewhere really cold underground? Yeah, really cold, or, I guess. Yeah. yeah. Or like process it. Dry it. Dry yeah, it. it yeah. yeah. Which is... I suppose I hadn't really thought about this, but like there's tons of livestock in some countries. And I suppose I'd actually just assumed that once we ate what we could kind of immediately, Mm. we'd lose a lot of edible biomass. Mm. Um, But I suppose if there were like a campaign to Mm. like dry all of this meat right away, maybe that's more salvageable. So that would make it even more, that would make it look better. Yeah. What other stuff might be in short supply? Yeah. So... Certain medications will run out super quickly, which most people don't actually rely on medications to live, so wouldn't be definitive. Yeah, power would be gone almost immediately, except in a few places that have really well-designed hydroelectric dams. And then GPS apparently would survive a couple of days, but then the satellite's orbits would slowly start shifting out of place. So GPS would stop being accurate Do people have cars? Do cars still work? Yeah. So cars will work. They'll eventually break down as they would in normal times. Gas, like diesel gas, lasts about 10 years if it's just Mm. sitting under a gas station. Non-diesel gas, the gas that most cars run on, lasts more like five, Mm. at which point it degrades. And technically you could make it usable again, but you'd have to like... It'd be hard be a chemist okay. yeah. Yeah, yeah and like yeah do some chemistry but then you could pretty easily for the first basically five years run cars by either figuring out how to generate power to power gas stations or siphoning it out kind of more mechanically you could just pull the gas out put it in the car the cars would run until the things broke down and then even then, you'd have plenty of people mixing parts to keep keep cars keep running, running for even longer. Yeah, I guess there's case studies of this, right? Because there's mm-hmm. various countries where I suppose like Myanmar, mm-hmm. uh, like Cuba, places that had Cuba's import a good one. restrictions. Yeah, exactly. Um, where they did manage to keep cars running for a surprisingly long time. Yeah, exactly. And it did rely on kind of like mechanics in Cuba. It's like more prestigious to be a mechanic in Cuba because it's like <laughs> it's a, a really job. valuable skill set <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, to like be able to keep them running. So basically, I guess, I suppose they, they combine cars over time, I guess, by like combining the working parts of each of them and then find yeah. other replacement things that aren't exactly the part that was originally intended, but keep the car yeah. moving. Yeah. And I think the things, I think things that get hard are like tires. You'll have tires for a long time, but once you do run out of tires, it's extremely hard to make tires mm. from rubber. But a lot of other things you could plausibly... They didn't um, used to use, or like originally, I don't think we used rubber tires. We used like stuff that was full of hay or I don't know. Yeah, it was like yeah. weird sorts of tires. I mean, they were very unpleasant, I think, because they had right. the bounce in them. But right. yeah. yeah, yeah, good point. And I don't know how hard it would be to retrofit a car with mm. some like non-rubber <laughs> tires, but maybe we'd have cars even longer than I thought. Yeah. Um, what, what, do electric cars keep running without the internet? Yeah, I can't think of a reason they wouldn't. I don't actually know that much about electric cars. Yeah, I think they're meant to like break down a lot less, so they might have that yeah. benefit. I suppose it might be hard to, harder to get electricity than access to oil. I think so. Yeah. I think it would be. Though like another case where we see real ingenuity is in, again, places that have seen a lot of conflict. So during the Serbian bombing of Bosnia, there were cities that were completely 
isolated from the rest of the world for a period of years while they were being basically attacked and like supplies were being like restricted mm. and people generated electricity by pulling engines out of cars and putting them into rivers in a way that like created like a water. Um, oh, wow. They turned them into hydropower. Yeah, exactly. But then also just by pulling generators out of just a bunch of different appliances that mm. have generators in them mm. and then jury rigging them to other things to just. Mm. Do you know how they got fuel? I don't know. I can guess like where I would think to get fuel now that I've like read about this, but I don't actually know in that scenario um, what they were doing there. I guess, yeah, in the future, it seems like if there's tons of solar panels all over the place, that could be a big advantage here. Uh, I suppose it would be very intermittent, but that's like not the key issue if you're trying to like charge a phone. I, I don't know. I can imagine phones, at least in some places, being like surprisingly important or like, I guess, yeah, basic food cooking or something like that. Totally. Yeah. And solar panels, I think they, I mean, they definitely degrade. I think they degrade at a rate of like 1% efficiency loss per year, mm. which just gets it's you a lot of time. so bad, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think that I've definitely read that some solar panel manufacturers are insuring their things for like fairly up to 30 years now. Wow. Uh, which I, I, Some people are skeptical. They think that this might be a bad move because <laughs> they're going to they're fail. <laughs> but money, yeah. uh, they, they, they feel cocky about the, wow. <laughs> uh, the performance of their solar panels. So maybe they are getting up to a level of technological sophistication where they could last quite a while cool yeah Yeah. that will that will be helpful so there would be ways to generate power and people would probably figure them out because Mm. people have really diverse skills this is now just an aside but i do think one thing this like kind of fallacy i had when starting this project was like i wouldn't know how to do any of this stuff so like we'd be doomed and then the issue here is that I don't know how to do almost anything, but lots of other people mm. do have many clearer, harder skills than I do. Like I'm probably at the bottom percentile <laughs> of like, <laughs> useful skill sets in the apocalypse. Um, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's possible that you know something that sure, uh, sure. you haven't recognized how useful it might be. Yeah, yeah but just because I can't People are going to need out. career advice in the, in the post-apocalyptic There you go. Game. They're going like, to need... Yeah. I recommend that you become the engine research. hydro converter guy. Right? <laughs> I, at the very least, will know that it's possible and that will yeah. be helpful. Yeah, yeah. To... Well, actually, you have really useful skills yeah. now. <laughs> yeah. Knowing what's possible did feel like an important consideration. Yeah. Um, it, it seems like another thing is um, it's easy to underestimate how hard people try when mm-hmm. their lives are on the line right. to do stuff, how like right. many things they will, they will try. Uh, yeah. Are there other examples that you can think of that? I mean, I also had this intuition of like, I couldn't possibly grow food. But of course I could figure out how to grow food. Yeah. Um, there are a couple of things like not everyone would be able to figure out how to grow food. And there are some random facts that you'd need to know or figure out. So for example, most people don't know that you can't just take crops that are grown in the fields mm. and get viable plants from them. Mm. You, they just don't produce seeds. true everywhere? It's, it's basically like 99% of mm. agriculture wow. um, doesn't produce viable seeds. Seems bad. Seems okay. bad. Well, what can you do? Um, so you'd have to know that like heirloom crops produce seeds where do they get the seeds from now are there special laboratories where they make yeah, the seeds that like, work it's like genetically modifying plants mm. to be super productive also mm. means modifying them to not waste energy on on reproduction seeds. yeah on reproduction oh so it's not like some terminator thing no, where they're trying no. to protect patents it's that they've engineered them to not produce anything other than the food it's probably a that... mix okay. yeah oh, they, okay they might be happy they as might... well if you have to keep buying the thing but... yeah yeah i think that is part of it Hold on, so, so farmers currently get it from special places that produce the seeds that they use. Yeah, and, and I guess, you get hope- new seeds every year. Okay. 
And they must have some like precursor plants that are producing these seeds. So you could potentially get them and then, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, So you could get them. I mean, like I, when I was doing this project, had an urgent get list on my phone. (laughs) I was just like, in the event of an apocalypse, um, the first things I would get included Mm. heirloom seeds. You can get them from from gardening stores. You can get them from from lots of places. It would be much more niche than like getting getting water or mm. like existing food. But if you knew to get it, you'd Possible. be able to. Yeah, and I guess what well, one story you might imagine is oh, there's people like you who go and like grab all the heirloom seeds and then mm-hmm. then go and like run their uh, run their farm and leave everyone else to die. But I, you would actually need a whole lot of other people. You'd be people. like leading a whole team of people to, totally. to go and do it, right? So like one person who knows this could probably. At least if it was possible to find other people, then it seems like the more the merrier by and large with this with this stuff. Absolutely. Yeah, there's other examples of people being like super clever in various things you've mm. read. I guess, yeah, so another one with Cuba is the... Um, Good one. Okay, so Cuba keeps coming up. Huh? Yeah, that, so with the fall of the Soviet Union, they like lost their access to lots of fertilizer and trucks that they were using for agriculture and stuff like that. And rather than like sit on their hands, they realized they weren't going to have trucks. So they, they bred tons of oxen in order to plow fields. Is that right? Yeah, this is a wild story. Mm. Um, so they did have, I forget how many years notice, maybe it was like just a year or two of notice that they were going to lose access to their main supplier of all of these key inputs to their agriculture system, their industrial agriculture mm. system. Mm. And so they basically were like, we won't be able to make food unless we can. And for some reason, the main bottleneck was plowing fields, like you said. And so they spent years breeding oxen to manually. They must have had a lot of oxen to start because right, you can only, oxen can so only quickly. make so many yeah. oxen, right? Yeah. <laughs> I don't know if that involved importing okay. while they still could. Yeah. I don't know that part of the story. So they managed to get like tens of thousands or something yeah. of, of the oxen. And then like, so I think they did have food rationing and the 90s were not a great period for Cuba, but yeah. there was not mass starvation or anything like that. Yeah. I mean, the the record is that it worked. It largely worked. Um, okay. They like, I mean, yeah, they didn't, they were massively less productive than they would have mm. been with machinery, which is like unsurprising, Yeah, but they made food. Yeah. Another one is people in POW camps in World War II coming up with radios out of pencil, graphite and like various wire that they found. I guess they knew more about how radios worked than perhaps like typical people did, right. uh, but they were managing to communicate and like listen to radio programs. Yeah, exactly. I don't actually off the top of my head remember the precise materials they used to make these radios, but it was things like gum wrappers and and pennies. Um, everyone kind of knew the like assembly instructions and i as far as i know you could only listen i don't uh, remember yeah i mean I, i'm sure that they were figuring out ways to broadcast but not kind of like foot soldiers mm. who were who were doing things like putting these radios together both to get news and also just to like listen to music mm. and this was just like most people would do this yeah. um it wasn't hard and that's another one where i'm like what a radio is magic, magic yeah. <laughs> surely you couldn't make one with random bits um but things you are can. not magic okay considering less materials now more like know-how mm-hmm. i suppose so in the situations where there's far fewer people like 99 percent of people dead or something like that how much will we struggle to access knowledge about say medicine or other topics where it'd be really potentially useful to remember stuff from the pre-apocalypse yeah yeah so I suppose, luckily, there is kind of an inverse correlation between how valuable knowledge is and how few people have it. Mm. This isn't perfectly true. So there are some things that would be really useful for survivors to know, Mm. like what's a common one. I guess 
there are some weird things about telecommunications Mm. that like six people know. Mm. And so we'll probably lose those facts. But mostly, like, even though there are many fewer brain surgeons than general practitioners or something, brain surgery is just less important um, than all the knowledge that general practitioners have. And that just like does a lot of work. Hmm. So we'll lose lots of sophisticated knowledge of some types of medicine, but it's hard to imagine why we'd lose germ theory and even like some basic things that will make maternal health better during childbirth, for example. And even that will be a huge improvement on where our ancestors were um, at similar population levels. Yeah. How many people know things like how to keep a car running or like how to run a power station? Maybe think about that or like how to run the electrical grid or get that back up and running. Things that kind of stand out is maybe there's not enough people in that in that group. Yeah. Yeah. Those were good candidates for like, I called them critical skill sets. And I guess it's just kind of hard to think about. So one reason it's hard is like no single person knows how to run a power grid. Mm. It's like really distributed knowledge. And leadership at a plant might have more knowledge of the bigger picture, Mm. but it's still distributed, not just in the many individuals who like know the different steps, but also it's going to be in like manuals and some of those will survive. Mm. So it's hard to think of like really critical knowledge that's super concentrated Mm. in like a couple of people. And I try to do some back of the envelope calculations to be like, what is concentrated and what could we lose And I would love for someone else to try doing this research in a way that produces more interesting results than what I did. Um, I ended up doing things like maybe like we think advanced chemistry would be really nice to have. Hmm. So I was like, how many PhD chemists are there? And try to think of it this way. And when you think of it that way and you just make some naive assumptions about where they live, you still have lots of PhD chemists, Hmm. even in a world where 99% of people have died. I guess it might be getting down if you're at the 99.99. That's where you start to hypothesize. I think I just don't know enough about how critical infrastructure works to Mm. be like, what's the job? What's the one job that's like scarce, but super critical, Mm. but you can think about it just kind of theoretically. Like maybe there are some jobs like that and you do get to the like 99.99% population loss level before Mm. you start thinking that there are jobs like that, that you'll definitely lose. Yeah. 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 It could be an interesting thing to contract, I suppose, like a power grid company or someone who runs a power plant or I guess like, you know, British Telecom or whatever to be like, imagine that like there's only two of you left in in, in British Telecom. Like what what could could they get running in London? Like what could you get them to run? Yeah. Um, I actually tried really hard to get in touch with power companies Mm. for this. They they Um, weren't keen to chat? They were not keen to chat. (laughs) Busy, okay. (laughs) Yeah, they thought I was really weird, to be honest. Oh, really? They thought, huh? Yeah, I would like get to their media teams and be like, it's totally speculative questions, but would you be Mm. up for chatting? You don't even have to be on the record. And just no one wanted to. They thought it was really, really strange. I get, yeah, it feels like you need maybe some government resiliency office to get in touch with them and say, like, we're doing right. a review of, like, critical infrastructure exactly. in, like, these cases. Like, yeah. Can you explain, like, how resilient your stuff is? Totally. Yeah, my, my guess is they wouldn't initially know a lot of these questions. Well, like, certainly yeah. a, a good thing where it's like, okay, now 99% of your staff aren't coming into work. Um, yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, and there are, like... I know we talked about kind of how limited the research in this general area is, but there are some nonprofits that... Their mission is to improve resilience of critical infrastructure Hmm. and to like point out weaknesses, basically. Yeah. Yeah. And 
I n- never found anything that felt super show-stopping mm. um, in terms of like a thing that would be really hard to recreate or a thing that would be really hard to relearn or something. But probably those are the type of researchers that would come up with a better answer to this than I could. Yeah, yeah. I, I suppose you could... Uh... Like in a world where such a large fraction of the population is gone, like 99 and 99.99%, the infrastructure you need is wildly less ambitious than what we presently have. So in that scenario, now we're talking about only 6,000 people being alive in Britain or like, I don't know, 600,000, let's say. So realistically, what you want is like one power plant back up and then like to connect it to one place where everyone's going to congregate, or at least like that's the place where you'll be doing the electricity and industrial stuff again. Yeah. And, that's and that another, seems a lot more plausible mm. that it's like a few electrical people or a few people who knew about the power grid could go there and get right. like the least damaged power plant running and then connect it to this one city. Right. Exactly. And it's another example of this trade-off between having more people versus fewer people. Hmm. Um, in this case... More people means you keep more of the power grid on, but fewer people means you just need way less sophisticated systems um, yeah. to create enough power. Yeah. Did you learn anything about the internet or how hard is it to get the internet running again? Yeah. I felt pessimistic about the internet, but I didn't look that hard into it because okay. it didn't seem super critical. Yeah. Yeah. I suppose that's fair. I've heard that it's meant to be, it was designed to survive a nuclear war or like, yeah, yeah, yeah. I hadn't heard this one. So I originally, hadn't... I mean, so you could have the internet be far more centralized, but the US, when they were designing it, originally it was, it was for military purposes. They were like, right. no, we're going to like have it organically reroute everything based on wow. like what is still running. So I think, for example, like New Zealand could have its own internet continuing without necessarily needing contact with the rest of the world. Wow. Maybe that's no longer true or maybe like huh. they, they will have messed something up and it would be in practice hard to keep it running. But right. it's, it's designed to outlast a nuclear war <laughs> originally. That's so cool. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, I guess thinking about it, I suppose it's, it seems like so many of the computers would be gone or the computers would eventually break. And so I'm not sure how long like right. internet would be like centrally useful, but maybe it would be quite useful for people to find one like in the initial stages to share information. Yeah, exactly. Quite key. Yeah, I mean, even if you had one and printed things, mm, that yeah, would be yeah. pretty good. Um, yeah. Like just being able to selectively pick out things to keep indefinitely and put them somewhere deliberately and just have information. Yeah, your printers famously last for years without technical problems, so we, we, <laughs> know, should, be, we should be pretty secure there. <laughs> yeah, that's got to be a new intervention, is making printers more, <laughs> um, more robust. What about water? You're saying in some places, I guess, water's stored in reservoirs and it comes down through gravity. Other places it's pumped. I guess the pumps are probably mega complex. But I guess water stands out for like you die quite fast with no water. So that's maybe even before food. That's the thing that you're struggling to get. Yeah. I mean, so water, again, there's geographic non-uniformity. Yeah, there you go. Yeah. (laughs) So this, again, is a theme. Yeah. Um, Some places will just have fresh water nearby. So that'll be like the easiest scenario. And it's really not very hard to, I mean, you can, you can drink fresh water and not get super ill without doing anything to it. And then by doing a little bit more, you won't even get ill. And then if you are super unlucky and have no access to fresh relatively clean water, then there are still... So I even did a back of the envelope calculation that was like, how long could people survive with just the water bottles in grocery stores, Mm. which is like not that long, but it would, I didn't feel like the first thing people would be dying of was thirst. Water bottles feel like they buy you some time. 
Yeah. I mean, we're mashing together lots of different scenarios here and yeah. just like thinking about like, you know, water in general, what's the deal with sure. water? <laughs> but I guess yeah. it's like, so it's pretty different in the like climate change versus right. the nukes versus the pandemic. Sure. But yeah, continuing to mash them together. It seems like <laughs> if water is your main concern, then you move to a place exactly. where there's more water. I, I suppose like Saudi Arabian desert is like maybe, maybe a right. challenging one, but there's like other places like in Britain where maybe there's places where there isn't a lot of fresh water, but there would be other places where it rains more. Right. <laughs> it kind of rains a lot everywhere here, but you're closer to a reservoir or something. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. That was my answer to like several potential scary scenarios is like um, people will still move. Sometimes they will even move in cars and trucks, Mm. Um, but at the very least they will move on foot, maybe on bike. Yeah. Maybe the cleanest one to imagine or the easiest one to envisage to me is a pandemic goes through incredibly quickly. 99% of people die, Mm. but then the rest are left. They've either survived it or they're immune or the thing or the pandemic's gone away. Yeah. Now, so the infrastructure is all here. They've got quite a long yep. time. In that case, I mean, they can go and look at all the maps and be like, all right, where's the reservoirs? Like, yeah. where's the main agricultural regions here? Mm-hmm. And then be like, where is the housing? And there's so many fewer of them that they could just go and occupy the places that seem most promising from yep. a like reconstruction point of view. Right. And depending on how much is still working, you can even try to get everyone in the country like move to this region where you're like, hey, we've got the power station, we've got the water, right. we've got the food, yeah. And even if things weren't working, they would be attractors whether or not they could communicate. Mm. And and that's also just helpful because in a world where you lose lots of population, I guess, yeah, some people will start to worry about genetic diversity and mm. like just keeping large enough groups to be able to keep growing new people yeah um i guess got all the single people they, they haven't got tinder anymore so <laughs> how are they gonna <laughs> you have meet to go to the water reservoir to yeah, yeah find exactly. A partner, so. exactly. <laughs> <laughs> um yeah so so they're gonna be these attractors that are gonna mean like people aren't randomly scattered across yeah. different land masses they're gonna be like really interested in getting to former cities or yeah let's talk about the finding one another thing for mm-hmm. a minute so I guess it's like being isolated is itself in a sense a threat. And you're like, I'm, yeah. a, I'm alone, completely yeah. alone, or there's only 10 of us. Right. And like, we're really not qualified to be <laughs> taking this yeah, on yeah, ourselves. Yeah, yeah. So like, you can say that kind of like a challenge in general. Mm-hmm. You had this amazing stat about how concentrated human population is. Yeah. So it turns out that 95% of the world's population lives on just 10% of its land area. So 7.5% of the land area could be home to millions or even billions of people. <laughs> yeah. I guess I'm familiar with this as an Australian where it's a huge continent, but then basically everyone lives in a, in a handful of cities. Yeah, exactly. And I suppose globally, it's just like, it's a bit different, but it's not, not so different. So you, this thing of like someone having to trudge across Siberia in order to like find other people. Yeah. Even if like 99.99% of people are dead, you could imagine that major cities like London or I guess India and China, these places would be like potentially relatively crowded with the survivors. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. I think this gave me pause for a second when I was like, if people randomly meandered across continents, Mm. how probable would it be that they'd come across each other? And then I was like, no, they will be following roads and the roads will lead to cities and there aren't that many cities. And I think they just, I think they just find each other pretty, pretty easily. Yeah. I suppose it's something we haven't talked about, which is amazing. Is this movie Threads. You haven't seen this one? No. Okay, right, right, right. So this is from the 80s. There okay. was a pair of movies. Actually, no, three of them, I think. One made in the Soviet Union, one made in the UK, one mm-hmm. made in the US, which all detailed in like gruesome, realistic detail 
what would happen in the build up to a nuclear war, then during the nuclear war, like most people die and then there's a bunch of survivors and then like, what would they do in order to survive? Right. And in that situation, I suppose this was a case where the UK does especially bad in the nuclear war situation Mm. because of how concentrated it is. Uh, So both like the fallout and the direct blast kills a much larger fraction than in the US, for example. That makes sense. Um, It also gets like very cold because of its location. So this isn't isn't a great Mm. place to like last out the nuclear winter, unfortunately. However, um, 80,000 hours should not have a surface (laughs) Right, right. But some of the... um, in, in the movie, now this is kind of realistic. It's like they're broadcasting stuff outwards. Mm. So like there's still radio towers that operate. And huh. so they like basically send out mass messages being right. like, here's where to congregate. And like there's still food stocks. And basically the military takes them over and is like, you have to farm in order to, or you have to do work yeah. in order to produce food in order to get access to like the food supplies. Huh. Which is like a somewhat more aggressive scenario. Yeah. Uh, I suppose in that case, they've like been building up to a war the whole time. So they kind of had a big plan for like, what would they do in this right. case that involves the military very heavily. Yeah. Um, Which again, maybe they have. Yeah, maybe that does exist. But mm. yeah, basically people came together relatively rapidly. Mm-hmm. You even see people like crowding into hospitals like in the immediate like aftermath right. where obviously it's like most people can't be safe, but there is still like some ability to do medicine. Sure, to... yeah. Yeah, I can definitely recommend that. I mean, it's a brutal viewing. It's uh, It actually like apparently helped to persuade Reagan and Gorbachev. I think they actually wow. watched this and were like, this would be... This would be really bad. Right. <laughs> the nuclear winter thing like seems seems rough. And they became more excited about arms control, both the result of the general thing about nuclear winter sure. and then about the specific thing of playing out this scenario huh. for for people. And it had a big effect on public perception. It's kind of interesting that it's fallen out of public conversation. Right. But there's a bunch of stuff on Wikipedia about this episode where these movies were like all produced in quick succession. Right. And what effect okay. they had on people. So people might some people might, might be disagreeing with our general take here because we have this like peace in the world, like everyone <laughs> holds hands and gets together yeah. and like tries to cooperatively farm. And I think the typical story, as we were talking about, is more like people are at one another's throats or killing one another. It's like zombie apocalypse almost, where it's totally. like the last person surviving like gets all the food supplies. Yeah, what reasons do we really have to think that people would strive to get along and find one another? Yeah, yeah, I guess I do feel a bit peace and lovey um, Mm. when I talk about this. But it does just, I think you even pointed me to the research on how people react to crises. And it's like, according to like sociologists who have looked into post-crisis response. And again, this is hard to generalize from because it's not actually a case where maybe the world's going to end. It's Mm. like sociologists looking at how individuals and groups respond to like tsunamis and hurricanes. Mm. And it's just almost unanimously not violent. Like Mm. looting is a kind of like famous trope, but almost never happens. Mm. Same with people fighting over resources. I think it's like, it did feel intuitive to me that there'd be like lots of violence because people would be facing death. But not only does that not look like the case empirically, it also just doesn't look like a very, I mean, it looks like a strategy that might help some individuals survive if you just think about it theoretically, but it really doesn't seem like a strategy that would be good for the majority of people to take on Hmm. because most people will really benefit from cooperation that lets them grow more food. Like an individual will have a very hard time producing enough food for themselves. And like, there's a reason that we live in cities. It's because we specialize and like produce Mm. more stuff for the number of people. And so cooperation has these like clear benefits, especially in the context of agriculture. And insofar as like, there'll be some selection for like survival strategies, it seems like lots of people would benefit from taking this cooperation strategy. And that there will be like some cheaters or people who use violence to get a bunch of resources. But 
on the whole, that's not going to be a very persistent survival strategy. Yeah. Because you've got to have someone to steal from. Right. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I, I think I've like given something like this rant on the, on the show before okay. where it's, yeah, people have this perception and you heard this in like February, March, like April last year. Some people were like, oh, there's going to be a crime wave because of COVID-19 yeah. or like people are going to be at one another's throats over all mm-hmm. of this stuff. Because in the US you got political polarization over some things like wearing masks, but that kind of seems to be about as far as it went. Like actually crime went down in most places. Yeah. The level of coordination and cooperation and frankly self-sacrifice in order to contain the pandemic was much larger than I think folk wisdom would, would suggest. Yeah, I mean, there was some hoarding that, like, Mm. I did buy more toilet paper than (laughs) I wish I had. (laughs) This Um, goes to show that you would, like, shove a knife into the person next to you in the post-apocalyptic world. Exactly, those are equivalent. Access to toilet paper, yeah. Yeah, so it's almost like we have this empirical fact about that. Are are there other, like, case studies that we can point to where people cooperated to a surprising extent? I mean, this is partly about cooperation, but about other things as well. But the story of Hiroshima is interesting. Totally, Yeah. yeah, yeah. So both Hiroshima and Nagasaki suffered... I mean, just horribly. I don't think I fully understood before looking into the details, but basically a third of the population died. I think the population started around 400,000. And yeah, I think maybe a quarter of those people died instantly. And then another set of tens of thousands of people died from kind of radiation poisoning in the weeks after. So that already was horrible, of course, and shocking to learn and especially to learn about the details. And then, yeah, I just remember being really surprised that 90% of the city's buildings were either totally incinerated or reduced to rubble. So just like this huge infrastructure loss. And then at the same time, yeah, I also learned that the recovery was just shockingly quick. So if you think I mean, the the analogy doesn't totally work, but if you kind of imagine these as cities whose kind of societies basically collapsed, how quickly they were able to recover is just really, just really astounding to me. So I think power was restored to um, at least homes that weren't completely destroyed within, I think it was like a month or so, water pumps were restored within, I think those, it was just a few days. Actually, maybe what surprised me even more was some intermediate services were back Mm. within the next two or three days. So they had trains running. Yeah, Yeah, trains running on like day two. I remember learning that the bank, there was a bank where I think, God, this is awful. I think literally all of the employees were killed immediately, but the bank was able to reopen a few days later. And those services were actually just really important to getting things up and running again. Other things too, like telecommunications. So they had phones back, I mm. think on day two or three. And all of this kind was- Kind of beggar's belief. Yeah. It's, but I mean, it, yeah, you've checked the sources on this. It's like- yeah, yeah. I mean, it's, I think the thing that makes it less generalizable is obviously the fact that they just had tremendous support from mm. very nearby cities. Mm, and yeah. those volunteers would have come in and like literally hauled, in some cases, new like pieces of equipment. And then I think- I think population levels reached the levels from before before the detonations within, I think it was a decade for both Hiroshima and Nagasaki. And I want to say that infrastructure reconstruction was completed in much less than that. So on the scale of a few years, but I could be remembering that wrong. 
Yeah, yeah. All right. so, so that's an amazing one that perhaps speaks more to the fact that you can maybe get infrastructure back on like surprisingly easily or at least yeah. like localized disasters perhaps you can rebuild much faster than you expect i guess we had this actually so we're just jumping all over the place here but i, yeah. I hope, hope you don't mind too much this list um in general like germany was destroyed to like such an incredible yeah. degree like massive amounts of death massive infrastructure destruction likewise with japan like europe in general yeah and yet there was a post-war boom right uh, exactly like the economies did fine gdp recovered to previous levels and mm-hmm. like exceeded them within decades population got back to like previous levels before too long despite this being the most devastating war okay so the soviet union suffered perhaps even worse than japan and germany in the end i mean in terms of like population loss it was a third of the population but the soviet union went on to be this massive threatening thing that like was a superpower that could take on the u.s like within decades uh, like within less than decades right um i mean germany and japan were economic miracles yeah and uh, yeah i think there's an interesting study that i'm sure is not perfect but looked at vietnamese cities that had been Mm. bombed and when you look 10 years beyond what was really the complete destruction of many cities Mm. in Vietnam, like poverty, trade, all the indicators that you'd look to were at least as good as comparator cities. And as like you would have predicted if you'd just drawn a line from the trajectory those cities were on. Mm. And some cities were doing quite a bit better because when you spend money on investing in infrastructure, it actually like has some like economic benefits. And so it's really not obvious that massive physical infrastructure damage will like wipe a city off. Hmm. In fact, there can be a real momentum in rebuilding yeah. that can lead cities to be even bigger. Now, these things aren't like quite analogous to the like sure. to the nuclear war apocalypse case or even the like pandemic that caused 99% of people case. But I think the thing that I kind of take away from this is that capital is cheap. Infrastructure is yeah. like surprisingly cheap. Like if you have the know-how and you have the people and you have the culture and the corporation, like the institutions, if that stuff kind of persists, you can rebuild a house real fast and you right. can like start rebuilding, I don't know, like manufacturing, I guess actually cars are pretty hard to manufacture. I won't say that. Yeah. But like maybe like electricity grids, like surprisingly easy to to get back up and running. I think that's uh, despite right. like massive damage. Yeah. And I think that's exactly what I got from it too, is not like we'd rebuild civilization in days after, you know, the worldwide collapse of everything. But it is just that physical stuff. Like we've built it very slowly over time. And so we have this image of it as having needed all of that time to Mm. be built. But I think that's just not right at all. If you imagine like a massive amount of resources just being thrown at it all at once. Yeah. I think you can just get really quick. Oh, a fun fact, actually, I think. I think China builds the equivalent of a new Rome like every day. I think that's the fact. (laughs) I think it's like they have so much construction. Okay. In terms of like sheer number of buildings or something. Something like that. I forget exactly what the metric is, but. Wow. Because Rome had like a million people at its peak. Maybe it's like a week, but. I wonder if this is something where they're like doing a GDP value of all of the infrastructure. Yeah, and I didn't, I didn't dig in super hard to that fact. Yeah. But I mean, something in that order kind of like makes sense. Another interesting kind of historical analogy that like doesn't quite fit but speaks to the fact that people don't turn on one another that much is mass aerial bombing in World War II, which has come up on the show previously, I think, in the episode with Daniel Ellsberg, mm, where he talked yeah. about there was this big theory in, in the military in 30s and 40s that if you bombed a city a lot, like London, like Dresden, like Tokyo, that mm-hmm. people would lose their morale and they right. would like lose the will to fight the war and it would cause the other country to surrender. Right. Nothing could be further from the truth. It had right. like no effect like that. Like, do we remember the Blitz in London as the time that people like lost interest in fighting the Nazis? Right. We do not. And yeah. nor is that the case in any of the other countries that were bombed. Like they pulled together and they felt like extremely angry with the people who were fighting them. And in fact, right. like they coordinated more than ever in order to like overcome this adversity. 
I, something that's unique about that case, I guess, is, well, something that's different about that case is that you're specifically fighting an enemy, an external enemy. Sure. But we saw some of that with the pandemic and like right. in, in the war cases, which is some of the most destructive, then you would have this thing. You could imagine in the post-nuclear apocalypse thing that people would feel like an enormous sense of camaraderie with right. their fellow citizens who have suffered this immense Right. We are all suffering um, yeah. because of the same thing, whether it's a, an, a nameable entity or like, a, like another state or, yeah. or a pandemic. I, and the other thing I have about this is even if you get some groups where for whatever random reason there happens to be more violent people or something and you actually do get some like set of factors that means there's violence, they're just, I guess this only applies if you have isolated groups, at least somewhat isolated groups. But like it doesn't really make sense to think of it as a single... I don't know, pool of survivors. Mm. If it's many survivors, there'll be kind of geographic variation in Mm. like what culture is like, just like there is now. If there are a few survivors, they'll probably be in like groups that actually don't contact each other that much because they're like ones trapped on Australia. I mean, Mm. maybe not trapped, but they've settled in different places and they're not really exchanging much. And then like you have to think, I guess you have to think it's a really dominant outcome is mm. that none You're of these groups will end up being cooperative yeah. yeah and i guess i mean you could have that view it's a really dark view you have to believe yeah. that human nature is just really but it just does not seem strategically yeah uh, robust other, other data points <laughs> Go on. at some point we have to flip this around and try to steel man the position totally I think. you're right but so even historically, when you have like a very aggressive group that tries to attack another one, they don't almost ever try to like exterminate the group that they're conquering. They want to tax them almost right. always. And so it's like, even if you're a marauding group in right. the like post-nuclear war world, what you want to do is get people into your control. So in they farm and then you like tax some of the agricultural like surplus that they're producing ideally. Yeah. The scenario where descent into conflict and just total strife and lack of coordination like potentially makes sense is one in which there are no productive opportunities uh-huh. where there's no ability to farm or make food or really do anything right um, but then you're dead anyways yes yeah, so then yeah probably you're somewhat dead i guess you could have this thing where it's like that was true for like a particular amount of time and if only you'd managed right. to coordinate better then you could have made it through to the so that, so in the nuclear winter case like if you're in a place where it's just like it's impossible to collect or produce any food mm-hmm. Then it looks more like the war scenario where you have a siege on a city where there's a fixed amount of food and no one can really do anything about the siege or the great great majority of people can't. And there you do get people turning on one another towards the end when they're at the point of starvation, typically. Yeah. But I think that is an inaccurate model of what the war... So certainly in the case where the infrastructure isn't destroyed and you Mm -hmm. don't have like massive, like a a sufficient climate disturbance that agriculture becomes impossible. In fact, people will see like productive opportunities all around them to scavenge things, to try to grow things, to like to move to a place where you can grow things to like even in places where it's incredibly cold and you can't grow wheat or whatever you can still, still do fishing grow potatoes right? grow, yeah, okay, grow potatoes or, yeah or if not fishing yeah okay so i think that might be like where the folk sense of we would just descend into mad max uh, right. comes from is the idea that there's nothing that you can make but yeah i think that is empirically unlikely that makes sense to me yeah are there yeah. is there any other evidence that we can point to in favor of the pro-conflict view i mean i will always probably bottom out on like At some point, there's an equilibrium where like the number of people left match the number of or the resources left. And unless it's at like four people left, those people will stop killing each other (laughs) because they'll have enough food and water. And then now they've got to learn to get along. Yeah. Yeah. So so I like usually end up there, even if I can get to some reason to think that there'd be lots of fighting. 
There are some studies, actually, that I looked into ages ago during my trial with ADK uh, (laughs) that suggest there's some link between climate variation and war. So Uh, I think in particular, a lot of the studies seem to show that drought leads to more conflict, Mm. Um, at least at the... My memory is that it is like is the case that it increases civil war, but it's not Mm. clear if it's the case that it increases interstate war. But I guess Mm. even increasing civil war would be like some evidence. Yeah, yeah. So you can't engage in agriculture as much, or there's not enough food, and so people start. Yeah, the theory was basically that the opportunity cost of war is lower because Mm. you can't use people as productively to grow food. Mm. So like to take up arms, you might get something beneficial like some other resource by taking it with your winnings, but you don't have much opportunity to like grow things yourself because the climate's too inhospitable. Hmm. And I guess that's just kind of the scenario you're you're describing, or you did a few minutes ago, that was like, if resources are so limited that... There's nothing. The to alternative be is starvation. Yeah. yeah, there's and yeah, yeah. There's no benefit from cooperation. Yeah, uh, or like, or at least it's like vastly reduced. Yeah. Um, yeah. My like internal model of the food scarcity, like in a normal society where like everyone is still surviving, is that people just become very dissatisfied with the social order, and so they're more inclined to say, "Oh, the government is failing us," and right. so they're like more inclined to revolt in order to like try to change the government. But yeah. If they don't have a good understanding of why there's not enough food, then they could just end up overthrowing the government and like disagreeing about what the new what structure should be yeah and then fighting yeah fighting and like it's not not useful so this is a case where it's like if you think that your food is very expensive because the government is failing then it's rational to do what you're doing but if that's a mistaken model then you've caused yeah. conflict without like a personal benefit yeah and that and there you need to believe something like the survivors models of the government and food production are wrong and that seems possible doesn't seem crazy that people would misjudge whether a coup would would be helpful yeah, I guess the, the conflict thing seems actually more probable in a scenario where there's more people surviving, potentially. Yeah. yeah, right. And then I, again, get to a place where I'm like, once you get to fewer people, it stops making mm. as much sense. So yeah. it does equilibrate or something before zero or mm. like anything close. But yeah, I think that's right. One thing we haven't talked about yet that might be in people's minds is uh, how many people would die of radiation and fallout and all that stuff after a nuclear war? Like how inhospitable, uh, how uninhabitable is the land afterwards? Right. Yeah, yeah. So... One thing is that, again, some geographies would be probably just completely free of radiation. So countries not involved in nuclear war, of which probably the the whole of the Southern Hemisphere wouldn't be, at least given current geopolitics. Maybe in like 300 years, the whole world has nuclear weapons and Mm. then there's radiation everywhere. But if you take now as your starting point, plenty of places won't have any radiation at all. And lots will have some radiation, but not radiation that makes it impossible to survive. So you might get higher rates of cancer, you might get higher rates of miscarriages. But even in plenty of places in North America, or some places in East Asia, or like Europe would probably be pretty terrible. But some places you'd have lower fertility rates, but still clearly be able to build a population. Hmm. And just like you'd survive. I see. That's bad for health, but uh, not... I guess so. You're suggesting it's like it's somewhat it's somewhat localized to where the bomb goes off, and it also disappears after a couple of or like it declines quite quickly. It does decline yeah. very quickly. And here, I found it really useful to look up like exact radiuses mm. of actual deadly radiation levels and areas, like the area 
around a nuclear bomb that is actually deadly. It was just a bit smaller than I thought. Hmm. And then I do think, and this, again, yeah, I should actually just do a bunch of uh, jogging my memory about this. But I think that radioactivity declines super quickly and that even areas that are uh, initially, I mean, Chernobyl, you can walk through. Right. Um, So it's at least, it's like decades. There is something else, which is, So there's some reason to think that radiation would be localized just because of the constraints of where the war is and who the targets are. But Louis Dartnell, who I was chatting to about this, suggested that maybe nuclear power plants all over would melt down Mm. as their like safeguards basically failed. Yeah. Yeah. What what happens with a... uh... Yeah. So there are safeguards that would mean that even if all of the power went away, the thing would shut off safely as soon as it detected a power failure. And so you wouldn't get like, I think when he first brought this up, I was like, oh my gosh, they'd all melt down as soon as the power grid went down. They're designed not to um, do that. Ideally. They are. Yeah. yeah. But eventually there's a bunch of coolant that gets released into the core of a reactor. That is basically the safe mechanism, if I remember correctly. And that's housed in concrete, basically. And at some point, concrete can deteriorate. Uh, and so if we're talking about long enough timescales, you would have kind of random meltdowns that would happen just as the infrastructure breaks down, unless people didn't find some way to either bring them back online and keep them safe. Hmm. And that would basically just happen kind of randomly. Some of them are really big and would have really significant... No yeah. Huh. So nuclear power plants work by having lots of material that's releasing neutrons close to other material that's releasing neutrons, and the neutrons prompt more release of neutrons from neighboring neighboring material. Mm-hmm. But it seems like you should be able to stop them from operating as nuclear power plants by moving the stuff right. apart, by separating the like yeah. blocks of, I think they have like uranium concrete mix right. or something. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I'm not, not, not a nuclear engineer, but uh, right. it, it seems like ideally we should have some system for them dispersing the material right. if they're just... Uh, In like a if, stable if, if, way. If just nobody comes to work. <laughs> I don't yeah. know. But I guess we didn't set them up this way, potentially. Yeah, yeah. My memory is that... And again, I think actually Louis Dartnell, who I was chatting about this with, is also not a nuclear physicist. But um, <laughs> he seemed to really think that at least some of the designs could not eventually, safe to, this. To, yeah, 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 to just like time. Um, okay, yeah, maybe that's a task for someone. Uh, well, yeah, is yeah. to like go around and yeah. like play with the buttons and figure out how to like turn them off. That's exactly. Just... <laughs> yeah, that'd be great. <laughs> yeah, I did even when I'm looking into that. Like, there aren't enough nuclear power plants to, like, have this be a major worry. But some people would have a nuclear power plant maybe randomly melt down near them, and that would be bad. Add insult to injury, really. Exactly. (laughs) Okay, so we're almost through going through, I guess, the major underlying considerations or things that people have to get online or, like, get access to in order to not, not die. And maybe keep to like just think about a couple more like historical analogies and see like yeah if, if we can learn anything from them because uh, sure. none of them are going to be quite the same but maybe there's something yeah. I guess the worst pandemics that have ever been I think there's the Black Death that Black killed Death. about half of mm-hmm. Europe yep um, there's the Great America's pandemic that resulted from like Europeans bringing many diseases all simultaneously right. uh, into populations uh, that were there that didn't have immunity mm-hmm. which i think we were saying could up to like 90 percent of people yeah, or possibly a, yeah, or in some areas in some areas is there anything that we can learn from that I, I guess at least about the pandemic case yeah i mean the black death is really interesting because 
it's really unclear what the effects of the Black Death were on all the metrics we care about, like poverty and life expectation. When you when you zoom far out enough, hmm. there are even some hypotheses that the Black Death was kind of a precursor to the Industrial Revolution, hmm. where the argument is that you had so many people die that there was a shift in basically capital became cheaper relative to labor mm. and so you could you paid people higher wages to use the capital super well mm. and so you were, you had these incentives to make capital more productive and you did that with machines i think is mm. how that story goes yeah something like that and who knows if that's right uh if it, if it prompted the industrial revolution it doesn't seem like it's or like if it arguably did then it doesn't yeah. seem like it's immediate term effects could have been that negative on society as a whole right right yeah. it seems like when you zoom out long enough, certainly Europe did reasonably well within a few hundred years of 50% of the population dying. Yeah. So whether there's something causal... Yeah, was there like mm. societal... Was there anything on this conflict versus people get along thing? I haven't heard of people fighting during the Black Death, but... Yeah, no, I haven't heard of anything like fighting. I've even heard the Black Death improved social conditions for the very poor mm. because, again, maybe related to this hypothesis that maybe we put some stock in but don't know for sure if it's right. Labor became so in such short supply that the very poorest got to demand higher wages and they got to demand more rights. So there were really weird laws that said that the poor weren't allowed to wear certain types of fabric. Mm, sumptuary laws. Yes, yeah, sumptuary yeah, laws. Yeah. yeah. So these supposedly went away mm. because poor people were empowered by the fact that they could demand more things because they were yeah. more valuable. Yeah. I'll wear purple <laughs> if I want to, God damn it. Yeah, <laughs> apparently. Yeah, yeah. Um, okay, interesting. So I guess in the Black Death case... People's incomes went up because the amount of land per person roughly doubled, basically. I guess we've kind of already said this, but in the cases where like much larger fractions of people die, even in nuclear winter, like one thing that you might underestimate is that, say, 90% of people are dead, then now each person can farm, in principle, 10 times as much right. land, and you can, like, can also just use the most fertile land, or like the amount of like, yeah. like you can, yeah, just to <laughs> divide the very best spots among the remaining people. I guess also you presently, like in a country like the UK, only a few percent of people work actively on farming, whereas in this new world, basically 100% of people Everyone in principle does. could go to like subsistence agriculture. Yeah. So there's like a lot of flexibility to like go from where we are. Mm -hmm. um, I guess there's also barriers, like none of us know, none <laughs> none of us know how to do it. it. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, I mean... Yeah. 25% of the population okay, is yeah. subsistence farming. Across the world, yeah. Across the world. Yeah, so, yeah, yeah. so in those um, places, they might do a whole lot better. Uh, yeah, exactly. At least in the initial... Yeah, I basically... More people alive today can do subsistence farming than, I think, in the late 1800s. I see. Um, yeah. So we have at least the potential for lots of people surviving that way. Hmm. Um, I think the limitation actually there becomes... Is still arable land, where like... Yeah, so I think that there's a study where someone tried to work out what the carrying capacity of the earth is for subsistence farming, where you don't use basically any kind of industrial mm. equipment. And it was in the hundreds of millions, um, though they're like big era bars. Is that using like modern plants? Because obviously they're massively like the apples we have now and the wheat we have now is so different than what people had even centuries yeah, ago. Yeah, I think it is using modern okay. plants. And I think the framing of the study was like... I think it was actually throwing a bit of shade at the movement of like... Go back to the land. Yeah, exactly. So saying like, yeah, well, sure, like, we could do that, but I guess most of us would have to cease to be... only 100 million of us could do it. <laughs> <laughs> okay, interesting. Yeah. 
Okay, so in that kind of scenario, we're still imagining like the great majority of people dying, but it doesn't go anywhere near zero. Right. You, yeah. Okay, a different train of thought is, is there anything that we can learn here from the fools of civilizations in the past, like the Roman Empire, it's got like the Khmer Empire, other great like disintegrations of coordinations across societies? Yeah, yeah. I think, I mean, one thing that stuck out to me about the fall of the Roman Empire is we think of it as one of the greatest disintegrations of society. And yet there were still large other groups, not only in the Eastern Roman Empire and like in the geography of the Roman Empire, but just not Romans, Mm. um, that not only existed, but thrived Mm. in the aftermath of the fall. There are also civilizations in other areas of the world that continue to thrive. And I guess the disanalogy there is like right now, the world systems are much more interconnected. Mm. But at some point, there again seems to be this kind of trade-off where if you've got lots of people surviving and you have this very interconnected web of critical systems, lots of them will collapse because they're kind of interreliant on each other. Mm. But at some point, we'll have regressed to the point where we're more isolated groups. Mm. And at that point, we actually just do look more like pre-industrial societies mm. with like more minimal contact, more minimal interconnected systemness. Like mm. maybe we go back to having some trade, but it's like not systems that will break each other's if they themselves are broken. Mm. And so it actually stops looking quite so disanalogous. It's like complexity does break, but there's a cap on that mm. when you start getting groups that have more rudimentary technologies again. And yeah, so I think it's something like when you get to these smaller groups, they become much more decoupled and decorrelated. And then even if terrible things happen to some of them, like there is a natural catastrophe, like a earthquake that might seriously harm one or like a blight that might like some some of these groups will just get unlucky, but Mm. it will no longer be the scenario where a thing that affects one population will like trickle through to all populations. Mm. They'll be much more decorrelated, which in a way will make at least civilization as a whole or human society more robust in kind of a similar way to pre-industrial societies. Yeah, interesting. Because, it, yeah, it does feel reasonably different. I, especially, mm. I so the fall of the Western Roman Empire was quite a gradual process in a way where they kept like moving That's the true. capital and they just became poorer right. and like less organized and the army wasn't what it used to be. Right, right. I yeah, it's almost like, a misnomer. Yeah, yeah. I think like the population did decline it did. Uh, in, because agriculture, I think, was less productive because they weren't as organized. Uh, and yeah. like, they probably lost some of the technical skill that they right. had previously had. Yeah, um, but I think it was more it was more of a mix of I think I've like had it in my head that everyone died. Oh, yeah. yeah. Like, it's like, yeah, well, who's killing the last one? Right. It's, like, it's always this, this thing that keeps but, coming back yeah, up. Yeah, but like that's not quite what happened. And also yeah. sometimes people just moved away from city. Like it was yeah. um, like Presumably. the city of Rome declined, but it was... I think the city of Rome had actually already become not a very important city by that's the time true. the like supposed fall of the Roman right. Empire occurred. That's, that's, yeah. that's totally true. I suppose, yeah, what, what can we learn about? I, what, hmm. One thing is just how much they managed to accomplish at that time with technology that we think of as pretty rudimentary. Right. Like, they didn't really have like that much paper, mm-hmm. <laughs> couldn't travel quickly. Uh, it's like most people are illiterate and yeah they managed to coordinate in order to accomplish stuff that's really remarkable in some ways it's like you know i wish (laughs) i wish that our government sometimes worked as well as the roman government in terms of just yeah ease of dealing with it yeah i don't know that's a that's a glib joke but it is impressive how much you can accomplish on a practical level with engineering that is far worse than what we have now 
Definitely. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, I think that's right. And I think you get decreasing returns to complexity. Mm. And so losing some complexity, if we don't lose all the complexity, doesn't lose us proportionately as mm. much of the productivity or something. Yeah. Um, that does seem important. Maybe another example of this stuff that people managed to do in the past, like a lot of the technology that we have now that blows my mind, is mm. that we managed to like get to basically all the Pacific islands. Like People were, I don't know, as I understand it, the group that originally went and colonized a lot of the Pacific islands originated in Taiwan, and they just kept kind of island hopping. Hopping, and then, yeah. <laughs> but what is going through these people's minds? Because they've reached some island where they're presumably doing all right, and they've got a bunch of people, and they're like, let's build a boat and like sail out east and see what's and there. don't know what's <laughs> yeah, there. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's like, I guess they... I don't know how much people have tried to look into this and exactly what the motivation was. Uh, maybe right. they were struggling for food at the time or they had overcrowding. Or perhaps they were just such good sailors that they could tell there was islands there right. for one reason or another. Like or people talk about they could birds get back or, they needed to. Yeah, or they knew how to get back. Um, yeah. But just incredible, the level of human ingenuity. Um, right. I suppose I feel like people alive today probably don't have quite that, <laughs> that level of grit, but maybe even so, uh, that yeah. will be more numerous in a way. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, is there anything else we can learn from the, from the ancients? Yeah, I guess one kind of interesting thing. So Rome had these amazing achievements and lots of them left physical artifacts and like not all of them were recreated by people living in the same region or other regions Mm. for a very long time afterward. Mm. When you might have thought that just by seeing the things around, someone would have been inspired to try to recreate it or at least try to like understand the technology and see if they wanted that technology for something else. Yeah, what's an example of that? Um, one example is concrete. Mm. Um, so concrete is amazing and one of the most useful things for construction that we have and is everywhere and all the time. Mm. And the Romans had Roman concrete that's pretty similar to the concrete we have today. Mm. And they used it to build these amazing architectural feats and those structures obviously stay standing. Mm. And so we like had this idea that they were, yeah, that they were possible. It was there. We could like take pieces of it and look at it. Yeah. So we could, you know, try to work it out and just no one bothered. So I think the first modern use of concrete wasn't until like 1800. So yeah, just many centuries later. So in the meantime, was there some rubbish concrete that people were using? I, I don't know for sure. It seems like probably there was a substitute that was good enough because we like built some pretty good stuff. Yeah. But Portland concrete is is like amazing, I think, relative to more rudimentary forms of concrete. And given that we had figured it out and used it extensively and then it had like major kind of benefits over the next best thing. Yeah. I think it's pretty surprising that no one tried or at least no one succeeded. Yeah. Any other examples? Yeah. I mean, it did... That kind of opened this thread of like, how does knowledge like that persist over time? Mm. Like, does it degrade? Does it get taught when it gets taught? Do we like lose some important bits? Mm. And so some examples of knowledge degrading over time that are kind of interesting. I think one was, I think Polynesian Islanders lost the ability to build boats Uh, and then got stuck. That's a big problem. Yes. (laughs) Yeah. So that one is, I think, like Mm. when apparently maybe there's some evidence that when you get really small populations and you try to pass down skills between generations, Mm. in a way you're like making copies of information. Mm. And when you like try to teach it, 
if the number of people learning it is small enough, the copies will get lower and lower fidelity. People are like... Because there's not enough people to cross-reference and correct mistakes, maybe? Yeah, I think that's part of it. And another one is the more people you have, the more people innovate. And then you get like improvements that make up for losses in, um, in like the basic skill. But yeah, I think the way you can think of it is if someone's teaching you to shoot an arrow lots of people will be worse at it than the master mm. and you need enough people learning it to so have the next some generation people someone exceed. as good as the best person yeah, in the yeah, previous exactly. time otherwise it just gets gradually worse gradually or the worse. state of the art gets gradually worse yeah and uh. so apparently this is the way in which at least one group of tasmanians lost the ability to build fire though in that case it seemed less stakesy because they were able to like go get fire from mm. their neighbors but they like had to like go light fires and then bring them back to their... Interesting. To, yeah. yeah. Okay. I suppose I've heard of the Tasmanian cases. I think actually the sea rose and then they were disconnected from the rest of the mainland. And I think so the population now, you've got like a pocket there that has like a much smaller population in aggregate than you previously thought. Yeah. And you don't cease exchanging information as much with right. the rest of Australia. And then the technology like degraded basically through right. this population too that... low mechanism that you can't can no longer sustain what you had before. And that's fire. I think fire among other things. Yeah. Okay. Wow. Other things. I hadn't uh, heard of other things. All right. I guess we're we've just finished laying out the cards here. I suppose we're a couple of hours into this, <laughs> but it's like a lot of the considerations we've kind of canvassed and figured out like what are the what are the main worries and what are what are some ameliorating factors. Let's try to bring it together now a little bit and think about the direct extinction case. So. There's two different paths to collapse leading to extinction that you consider kind of separately. One is 99.99% of people die and then relatively quickly the rest of them also die. So it'd be like, you guess you call that direct extinction? Oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and then there's another path, which is we get a collapse of industrial civilization. We go back to some agricultural, I guess, conceivably even pre-agricultural level of technological development. And we stay there for a long time such that then something like hundred years, a thousand years later, before we managed to recover, let alone get off of Earth, something else like, I don't know, a comet, a super volcano, something yeah. else manages to drive us to extinction. So let's do the first one first. What is a story that people tell, if they tell any story, for how even, say, 99.99% of people dying in some kind of cataclysm? So we've got 800,000 or so people left. How then all of them would end up dying as well? Yeah, I think probably the stories people tell most often are like, it's a nuclear winter. There's a 10-year period where a lot of the world is really on inhospitable to agriculture. And it takes a lot of ingenuity to come up with alternative foods. Mm. Like in some places, if you can't grow traditional crops, maybe growing mushrooms or something. And I know you've, yeah, yeah. you've talked about that before on the show. And so those things feel like possible, but hard. And so if there are few enough people and like, Fewer people means less creativity and resourcefulness, Not I think. Not many mushroom farmers left. Exactly, <laughs> exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You're less likely to like happen to have gotten someone who knows all about algae and fishing. Okay. Then then they just aren't able to figure out how to feed themselves in mm. the like time period. And there's not much of a buffer because a bunch of crops froze. Mm. And it's so cold in some places that... People you can't. die of cold. Yeah, you die of cold. You like can't. Not easy to migrate. Exactly. Okay. Yeah. 
Why is that wrong? <laughs> yeah, I think that's wrong in part because of this non-uniform distribution of effects thing. Mm. So people in some places will have basically that experience and then people in other places will will be able to fish and they won't have to migrate. And unless you got some disaster that by some weird coincidence happened to kill everyone in the areas that would be more hospitable to agriculture, even though that's not where any of the nuclear war was. Mm. You'd have to just get exceedingly unlucky for all of the negative effects to like be in the right places. And it's yeah. hard to think of a story where they're concentrated that way. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so it seems like it fails in like multiple different levels. One is it seems like a misunderstanding of the nuclear winter scenario yeah, where yeah. it doesn't last that long or is quite as bad as that. And it's not global in that to that extent it like varies a lot i think that's the first yeah i think that's the first way it fails there are other ways it probably could fail but i'd have less understanding i guess of like different ways that people can feed ourselves like how many different sources of calories there might be especially if the number of survivors is small yeah exactly yeah so even like lots of organic material even frozen will still be consumable yeah so that's like one i mean there are just all sorts of ways you could feed yourself at least in like relatively small numbers. I think Mm. when people point at holes in alternative foods, it's more because it's like hard to scale, which is true. And so if you're trying to feed lots of people, it could be really, really, really challenging and maybe lots of people would die, but it's hard to get to the extinction level. How much uncertainty is there about like how bad a nuclear winter would be? Like, is there some right tale of like, we've totally misunderstood and maybe it's just going to be way colder than we imagine? Yeah, that's not my understanding. And my guess if there were any kind of directional bias in the nuclear winter research is like the research that's been done, again, is talking about a nuclear war that's much worse than one that we'd see today. Uh, because um, it was done in the 80s when the stockpiles were so much larger. Exactly, yeah. Mm. And and the nuclear bombs themselves were many times bigger than the ones that are in our stockpiles now. And then on top of that, I think the research that we have came out of a time when it was especially beneficial to have lots of research that suggested that nuclear bombs were terrible. Hmm. And so like, while I think the nuclear winter hypothesis could totally be right and hold up, if there's like any bias at all, I would guess it'd be in the direction of overstating how bad it would be. Hmm. And like, if that was true, it'd be like implicit bias. And I would expect none of it was intentional, but it wouldn't be shocking shocking like some of the research that came out of that era were i think like people could understand they think well it's better to like err on the side of saying that this could be really bad rather than like giving people false sense of security about it uh, given that given that there's lots of uncertainty because it seems like it's worse to yeah right yeah yeah that definitely seems true and i guess just as it behooves us to (laughs) to assume to assume the worst and uh yeah yeah, yeah, right yeah Yeah, yeah. right it may have even been like really good for the world Yeah, yeah um Yeah, I'm trying to think if there's anything about the models that makes me think it could be much colder. I guess there's just one reason it's really hard to model nuclear winter is that like some parameters in climate models are apparently just insanely hard to get right. Hmm. Apparently clouds are really hard to model. They're the big X factor. Yeah, Yeah. exactly. (laughs) Um, And so to the extent that the model could be wrong in the direction of clouds would make it much colder. Um, Or like, for example... I mean, I, I think, think one, one way that doesn't had, get you to yeah, extinction is like you just still have the food from the sea uh, yeah. thing, which I think it's just so hard to prevent that from being accessible in some places somewhere. Right. Uh, 
because the sea's not going to freeze and like certainly yeah. not in the tropics and surprisingly it will like i think like plankton can still do photosynthesis in like quite low yeah, light yeah i think photosynthesis fish, is the like is yeah. the hardest thing but even that um yeah so we can yeah still have our like fish and mussel diet and seaweed yeah. and yeah okay is there another story i guess there's the thing that we kind of alluded to is the people imagining that people just kill one another until there's mm-hmm. almost none of them left yeah uh, is I- there anything to be said for that Yeah, I guess maybe, let's see, one thing that I've heard is people saying that it's not that you're killing every last person in conflict, but it's that you are like, you're like wasting the grace period and all these other kind of advantages that you have, like food lying around. If everyone's really violent because they're hoarding these resources, but they accidentally just eat through a bunch of it because they're wasting time fighting each other instead of cooperating, Mm. like they could just misjudge their own trade-offs hmm. or and they could become too short-term focused because exactly. they're just thinking about surviving uh, against right. like yeah other hostile forces right like rationally they'd like stop fighting at some point because food's getting low mm. and they should focus on finding more food mm. um but if they're not if they're not able to accurately predict or calculate how much food they need and how long it will last and how easy it will be to like grow new food yeah um maybe they just incorrectly keep fighting and see. Not a benefit yeah, wasting time that they could have been using to like reestablish yeah. agriculture. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah, it seems like it kind of requires this misjudgment. Uh, if people are so good at coordinating to fight one another, why don't they like set down roots and then start creating food and then yeah. like, defend themselves? It is it is hard for me to imagine any reason that they don't. Um yeah. but I do think that's like that's a story I've heard. Okay. Yeah. So I suppose you have to say something like people are all at one another's throats and like small groups so groups that are small enough to create trouble and fight one another but not big enough that they think that they can make food or find a find a reliable source of food and they just keep fighting and i guess at some point enough people die or they get hungry enough that they now wish they'd been investing in getting food oh they've run out of stocks or something yeah but now it's too late they don't have time to like reorient yeah. themselves towards like fishing right. um and so they die before they come to their senses right maybe it just takes a really long time to learn to fish plant the crops and learn how to have planted the crops in the first place. Mm. And so by the time they realize they're really hungry, it's actually just a year away from having a lot of food. Yeah. Is there anything, any other criticisms to make with that other than that it's like a series of things that each individually seem either unlikely or foolish happening one after another? I mean, it just doesn't seem like we see that. Mm. I can't think of any, like I can think of, Oh, I feel like I can think of examples where conflict peters out because mm. basic needs aren't being met and people transition to meeting basic needs. But not the reverse. But not the reverse. Yeah. I think like wars in Europe subsided at least to some extent during the Black Death. Like, mm. I guess that wasn't... Yeah, it just seems like people aren't often making this huge mistake. But maybe the big difference here is no one's ever had to learn mm. agriculture from scratch in this way. And so they actually just don't have the requisite knowledge to judge how long it will take to learn. Yeah, yeah. I suppose another criticism we have read is that it raises that this has to happen everywhere. So yeah, so not just I... in the North Island of New Zealand, but also the South Island of New Zealand exactly. and also Tasmania. And, yeah. yeah, so it has to be there has to be some very strong attractor towards this kind of behavior which would just be so peculiar given that we basically don't can't think of historical examples where this seems to have happened. Yeah, exactly. If it was going to happen, you'd really think it would have happened. We've had lots of resource scarcity throughout history and we Yeah, here we are. Yeah, exactly, exactly. <laughs> um and and again it goes back to this idea that if groups get small and isolated enough, 
they start getting really decoupled. And so maybe this happens in some places, but to think that every group will have this happen is is mm. weird. I guess once the population gets low enough now, just like fighting other people, it's a massive commute. What, <laughs> yeah. Who wants to you be traveling so far? Like, I mean, I think this like actually does become potentially an issue once we're talking about like really small groups. Right. So how low does it have to get before you hit some like death spiral where the genetic, like there isn't enough genetic diversity? I mean, the, I think it's the Ashkenazi Jews who like do have higher rates of many diseases, but clearly are fine and probably could repopulate the earth yeah. with a viable population. They, I think their ancestors were numbered in the 300, I think 300 is the number. 300, I think okay. it's 300. So people look at the level of genetic diversity there and they try to back out, well, what was the bottleneck what that was, it must have gone through? Yeah. And I guess it wasn't just one moment in time. It's more of like there's 300 ancestors, ancestors. who produced like basically all of it, yeah, all of the genetic material. Okay. Yeah, which maybe is different. But. Um, and basically that's led to a bunch of, I guess, recessive genetic things, whereas you, you have like two faulty genes and that's more common when you have very little diversity. Exactly. Um, but nonetheless, yeah, yeah, exactly. uh, it doesn't seem to have been yeah, a decisive yeah, impediment. Right, uh, right. I mean, incest happens and people have people yeah. have kids all the time that are very close relatives. Mm. And that's because you have to get kind of unlucky to get an actual thing that prevents reproduction or that causes the child to die. Well, I guess cousin marriage is quite common His, yeah. in some places now and especially historically, and people cite that as a cause of potential social problems or sure. health problems. But again, it's like definitely not decisive yeah. by any means. Yeah. yeah. Are there right. any examples of um, like two animals like producing offspring that then like reproduce in, in other species? I think <laughs> the smallest number that successfully repopulated was a group of 40 tigers. And they actually needed a lot of help from humans. But still, that seems... I don't know, helpful. Wow. Um, okay. Anyway, the numbers are like low. The numbers are low. They seem to be in the hundreds for like some confidence. Yeah. And I suppose this is a problem that potentially gets worse over time, I think, because it's like obviously the first generation too is enough (laughs) to produce the next generation. We know that from like individual families. The issue is then like going again and again through this cycle where I think you actually like lose material potentially because you get like more copying over and uh, you even like lose the genetic material of two over time. The two, yeah. But- over these many generations, potentially you're reuniting with people in other parts of the world. So yeah. potentially you just need like 300, it sounds like, globally, even if they can eventually all reconnect like within a period of generations. Yeah, generations. Um, yeah, I do think 300 globally isn't isn't crazy. Isn't crazy. Okay, okay. So it really does have to get, like 800,000 is more than enough. Uh, Definitely. You're not hitting on genetic bottlenecks at all there. Okay. What about something you have, you have the nuclear window, you get down to 800,000, like some other similar catastrophe. Do you basically need some other like very improbable, very severe catastrophe after that in order, like that comes in quick succession? Yeah. So for the direct extinction, it still felt really hard to me to tell this story. So like, let's say that you have 800,000 people. Let's say that you have 80,000 people. They're probably not in one place, Mm. especially if you had these non-uniform effects. Like if you only have 80,000 people left, they're probably randomly all over the world and they're probably not going to end up in one place that quickly. And so then things like earthquakes, they just won't affect the different groups. So it's hard to, yeah, it's hard to have a thing that affects all of them. Climate effects plausibly get closer to affecting all of them. But even climate effects just don't affect the whole world yeah. equally, basically, ever. Yeah. Um, so it'd have to be like, for some reason, maybe they were all on one 
in one region of the world, which isn't crazy. Maybe they'd all be in Australia, New Zealand. Hold on, everyone in South America died. Yeah, right. Exactly. Everyone in Africa I know, died. I know. What? You have no. You don't. You don't even have like two thousand people in South America. It does seem. How incompetent are you saying these people are? Yeah. You're right. You're right. Well, yeah, yeah. But it is very interesting when you like try getting really concrete like that. Exactly. Like, why didn't they move to like the place in South America that's most congested? Maybe they found it hard to migrate. But it's so like people are everywhere. People are everywhere. People are everywhere. Yeah. And you wouldn't. Yeah, eighty thousand people. On the one hand, if you think about it abstractly, 80,000 people is like a small city. It's easy to imagine a small city getting wiped out, but that's just not what it looks like. It yeah. looks like groups of 5,000 in a bunch of different places. They all just have, are like facing like very different environmental and climactic and all sorts of conditions. Yeah. Yeah, I suppose so you get down to 80,000 people, then you have like a massive supervolcano that compounds the climate problem or you have sure. like a serious asteroid impact. It does start to feel like now just the prior on that happening is at that most inauspicious moment is so low that yeah. we don't have to like super worry about that scenario playing out in the first place. Right. So yeah. that's why that's actually the main reason I distinguish between direct extinction and this longer non-recovery, because the longer non-recovery scenario is actually the way I'm thinking of it is actually just like if you give it long enough, you will have a supervolcano erupt, and then that could kill everyone. But basically, something completely unconnected from the first catastrophe happening that would kill the 80,000 survivors scattered all over the planet is exceedingly improbable. And the only way that happens in all likelihood, or in like the vast majority of likelihood, is that it takes longer. I'm basically thinking of like, yeah, if you don't go extinct, maybe you don't recover immediately. And so you have to, maybe you like delay the time of perils, this like period where all sorts of things like asteroids and volcanoes could cause extinction. Maybe those happen, but you, for those to be likely enough to happen that we actually worry about them, you need a much longer time scale than like the 10 years after the first catastrophe. Yeah. Okay. So let's turn now to the indirect possible route to extinction, which is that civilization collapses. We don't have industry anymore. Maybe we don't even have proper agriculture, but and we get like stuck in some like not very impressive state for such a long time that something like an asteroid, super volcano, whatever does us in. I guess there's like, there's no definitive answer. There's, there's no like particular timeline where it's like, well, we have to do it by like this specific date. Otherwise yeah. we'll be done in. It's more just like this risk that gets worse and worse the longer, the longer we happen to take. Um, right. And I guess we don't know what that risk is because nature never actually did drive us to extinction. Yeah. But it seems like the annual rate, as we've talked about on, say, the episode with Toby Ord and I think some other times on the show, the natural rate of extinction for humanity as like a hunter-gatherer species has to be pretty low. Otherwise, we probably wouldn't have been around in one form or another for like 100,000, 2 million years. So it seems like there's a pretty good chance that even if it took us 10,000 years, we would probably still be fine because we lasted much longer than 10,000 years. Yeah. I guess we've had agriculture for 14,000 years. I guess, I think like a million years ago, there was something that was similar to Homo sapiens, but it was like somewhat different. I guess there's yeah, just this like yeah. ambiguity about like at what point did we become the same species? Yeah. But anyway, I guess in broad strokes, it seems like we could say if we could get back to where we are now or like get off the planet or something in 2000 years, then the odds of us having been whacked out in the meantime by some other, by some other cause is like, it's right. pretty low. Like we're talking maybe like a single percentage points. Yeah, exactly. My best guess at a range of how long it might take based on how long it took us to get to agriculture in the first place from like early humans just doing hunting and gathering. And then again, to get from agriculture to industrialization, that takes maybe tens of thousands of years. But considering that 
you will already have the knowledge that these things are possible, or at least some like vague passed down memories that these things are possible. Mm. And you have things just lying around, like some things will decay beyond recognition, but things like some agricultural technologies, including just a shovel, will take a very long time to degrade. Some materials last a long time. And people will find them and experiment with them in all likelihood. And then that will speed up, I think, especially progress toward industrial-ish level agriculture. Mm. Beyond that, yeah, I think you get to something like maybe it would take a couple of thousands of years at the longest. And then you just clearly have plenty of time. And so the only thing I worry about here is if it happens to be the case that humanity has a really hard time getting beyond current levels of technology, and we're not able to drive any of these risks low enough that they don't happen in a kind of recurring way, Mm. where we basically get into a cycle of collapse and then recovery. Mm. Um, But then we don't solve things and we collapse again because we have some other, we have another war with a different kind of bomb this time. (laughs) I see. And then this goes on and we just burn down the clock. And at some point we'll stop having enough time before we get really, well, we get unlucky or we just have run down the clock so far, it was about time that some natural catastrophe will do us in. But yeah. that has to happen a bunch of times um, mm, before, before we get to that probability clock. becomes high, yeah. Yeah. Okay, let's maybe come back to the cyclical thing in a minute. And instead, just like canvas considerations in favor of sure. like rapid recovery versus very slow recovery. Sure. Yeah, how much of a benefit do you think we would get from having these artifacts and libraries and possibly yeah cultural memory as well, depending on how much is, is passed down. I'm guessing that there's historical analogies here where knowledge has been forgotten and we can see how quickly did people redevelop it. Yeah. So I mentioned the example of Roman concrete, which is centuries of a lost technology. Mm. So there's a case where people can see a thing and not necessarily be inspired to make it or use it or figure out how it worked. Mm. Yeah. There are, I guess, mostly lots of examples of people finding technologies or being given technologies but not shown how they work and like pretty quickly figuring it out and innovating on them. So that's like guns during some periods of history. Mm-hmm. And and I think the only example I could find where like there was a technology that one group wanted that they had evidence existed and had some sense of how it worked, but they couldn't reproduce was the Cold War era missile designs. Mm. So it seems like it's for the most technical. Yeah, exactly. Super yeah, yeah. technical. So we I think it was like spies found the blueprints um, uh. for a particular I forget exactly what the technology was, but then their country wasn't able to recreate it. But for the most part, it seems like with examples and the motivation, which may, maybe the motivation is the questionable bit. So it's the lack of factor. Did you learn anything interesting about you know how long books and libraries and information would last or how long these artifacts would take before they... I, mean, I would think like rust might become an issue, or like sure. cars, like even the shovels you're saying would last a long yeah. time. But some of them, at least if they weren't kept properly, eventually they would become a bit hard to reverse engineer. Yep, that's true. So different, I mean, I did just Google around for how long different materials take to degrade. How long for cartoonrust? <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> yep, yep. I mean, it was basically that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Makes um, sense. Yeah, so it's like wood can last for years or decades, depending on how it's treated. Mm. Metal can last longer, also depends on the metals and how it's treated. But still, that's maybe decades. And I think... There are like different levels of degradation. So there's like, is it usable? And then there's also like, is it recognizable? And 
both of those are useful, though one more than the other. But then some things are just really long lasting. So concrete lasts probably many decades or hundreds of years. In some cases, mm, many, yeah, yeah, many, many hundreds of years. And steel lasts a really long time. And then, yeah, those kind of physical materials. Plastic famously lasts a long time. Plastic yeah. lasts such a long time. <laughs> yeah, annoyingly, you can't really... Well, actually, you can melt a lot of plastics down and just remold them. Oh, really? Um, depends on the kind. Mm. And Louis Sartnell, in his book, actually, you can just look up which kind of like number of plastics you can <laughs> actually reuse. So if you're ever in the post-apocalyptic world and need plastic, you can read his book. Mm. Um, if... It lasts. So you also asked about libraries and books and how long they might last. And basically, it's again kind of related to variability across geographies. So in some geographies where it's very wet and there's lots of humidity, books would probably disintegrate super, super quickly mm, okay. um, within, yeah, years. Really? So in like tropical areas, libraries, uh, books that can only last years? I think decades. Maybe, maybe, yeah. I suppose maybe they do do a whole lot to dehumidify the air and things like that in order to like prevent books from getting too wet and like degrading. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I think there are things like, like they'll also just get so moldy mm, um, okay. and just have things growing on them that they'd be only like partially legible or something. Yeah, that's interesting. I remember uh, reading, so people who study ancient Indian history mm-hmm. have a real hell of a time of it because they basically only have stone artifacts and metals wow. and things like that because... Yeah, all of the like written records disappeared because it is quite a human place and things would rot. Some works of literature were passed down, but they had to be copied very frequently, which means that they like they actually were like more errors were introduced more quickly. And there was more more frequently the author would be like, Yeah, I don't like this, I'm gonna change this. So they like evolved (laughs) more quickly in the intervening time. Right. So it's a little bit hard to know whether whether they're the same as they were two thousand or three thousand years ago. That's so interesting. Of course, it's also true in Europe to some degree. Like I think a lot of the Roman stuff, it's an astonishing amount of the uh, uh-huh. Roman records that we have are actually only preserved because they were stored in a parts of the desert in Egypt that are extremely dry. Yeah, um, yeah. And like a lot of the stuff that would have been in Italy wouldn't have made it. Right. Yeah, yeah exactly. Which is, which, yeah, goes right to the next point, which is that some areas mm. have really great climates for storing paper and yeah. um, they'd be super arid climates where books could last. Yeah, I think it's centuries but i would want to double check interesting yeah i mean i think it's like it's bonkers with the papyrus stuff in egypt because that's like, true like in that's southern true. Egypt, sorry, that is a great example they're, they're like just like digging up and being like oh here's oh, like a receipt a... for like right. someone's coffee back like 2500 years ago and it's basically fine or it's yeah. like totally readable um yeah that's a very unusual i guess climate it's like completely dry yeah. right and i think my memory is that modern books would do a bit worse than that. I see. Um, but Papyrus still, is like, a, yeah, better yeah. material. Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. But that still lots of lots of modern books would last hundreds of years in, yeah. in some climates. Yeah. And then, yeah, I guess I did a little back of the envelope calculation to try to estimate, would we have to get really lucky for libraries to survive or like stores of information like libraries to survive? And I think I felt kind of fine about that or there was no... I didn't feel like that was going to be show-stopping. Even if you get lots of infrastructure damage, that's going to be non-uniform. It's going to be where nuclear bombs are dropped. And so then you have all of the libraries in the Southern Hemisphere or like a third of them. And then some of the climates in the Southern Hemisphere will be hospitable enough. And it does get whittled down to like fewer libraries than you'd like. But there are like clearly dozens, hundreds or more surviving. I think you, you cite the number of libraries in the world. It's like quite yeah. large. It's like in the hundreds of thousands, I think. Yeah, I think it's um, 120,000. Yeah, okay. And they're 
spread around, obviously, yeah, basically everywhere. Yeah, they're like definitely, concentrated in, like, they're definitely concentrated in rich countries. Yeah, yeah. Because yeah. an interesting thing is the, um, if we're thinking about this over hundreds or thousands of years, then mm-hmm. the thing that determines maybe how many books would make it is how expensive is it to copy them. Yeah. So that could become, it could become quite important how quickly do we get printing presses going again. Because uh-huh. the issue in India wasn't that, like, if everyone had been, like, re-diverted to, right. like, copying books, then they could have sustained a much larger corpus, like, right. copying it again and again. But reproducing books was so expensive then. You have sure. to have someone who's, like, very educated and literate, like, copying it out word for word and checking right. it. And so, like, the more expensive it is because the more frequently you have to do it because the wetter it is, like, the, the smaller, the like, the more important the book has to be to bother keeping totally. it around. And so the corpus becomes narrower. Yeah. But I guess as long as we can get, like, we will have printing presses. Printing presses, very, like, noticeable big machines of metal. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. They don't. Uh, yeah. And yeah. so hopefully, like, within 100 years or 200 years, someone would figure out how to do typesetting again. And then this is, like, giving you the potential to keep copying, like, decaying books at, like, some reasonable rate. Yep. That sounds right. The other thing is, I guess, cars rust maybe surprisingly quickly within decades that can become pretty unrecognizable. But you would hope that even if there's only 80,000 people left somewhere, they'd be like, well, let's just take this car and like stick it somewhere that's like not extremely wet. And right. like, maybe we can't reverse engineer this right now, but yeah. this seems like it'll be useful in future. Yeah. I guess because it, it, it's just if we had to, how stupid are these people going to be? Exactly. <laughs> the question is like, but I mean, it's an open question. Maybe they'll just be like so focused on the here and now that they're not very interested in preserving things for future. But it seems like even in the past, people had museums and they cared about retaining cool artifacts from the past. Yeah, individual variation even will mean that some people might not care about this, but some probably will. And then, and there are just lots of different ways to preserve information. I mean, you can store the car somewhere. You can also try to make detailed diagrams. That'll be like a less, or like a lower fidelity copy, but it will still accelerate the future reinvention of cars. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah, I do feel pretty comfortable with the amount of knowledge and the types of knowledge preservation um, mm. that they'll be able to do. Because one thing that seems like it might be challenging to get back up to is computers. It seems like we can store a laptop. I'm just looking at my MacBook over mm-hmm. here. It's a piece of aluminium <laughs> with some yeah. plastic. It seems like if you stuck that in a basement somewhere, it could still be pretty recognizable in hundreds of years. But it's going to take a long time before we have enough people, like the industrial base required to right. be like manufacturing laptops again, or probably any really sophisticated electronics. Yep. I think maybe that's like one thing where it's like we've had this transition to these new materials that mm-hmm. we've like embedded in every goddamn thing that we don't really know, like almost no one really knows how to make them or how they work, at least mm-hmm. like not people that I know. Yeah. And this has created this sense of mystery about right. like how the world functions that probably people didn't have 100 years ago. 100 years, I guess I'm sure they had like lots of advanced things, but like far more items would have been recognizably yeah. understand how they work, understand how you would make them in principle. Yeah, yeah, I think that's right. And I think we'd be much less likely to get some of those technologies back. I think, again, there's kind of a correlation between how recognizable the thing is and how useful it is. Mm. And even though we've replaced some really useful technologies with really complicated versions mm. like i don't know harvesting combiners mm. or something it's a much simpler version that does the job kind yeah. of yeah and they do it's not it's not like they don't exist anymore yeah. we still have lots of people around the world pulling crops out of the ground with more rudimentary tools mm. and they would survive to some extent i guess maybe the thing doing the work here is like there's just currently a lot of variation in the technologies used to do important things. Mm. And so while lots of places have complex technologies that have been substituted for simpler ones, lots of places are still using simple ones. Mm. It's a, another thing that's not going anywhere is glass or it doesn't break down that fast. 
and was super valuable for science. I guess really a useful material for a whole lot of stuff. Yeah. yeah. So I suppose we have like good reason to think that there'll be quite a lot of written records around. There'll be quite a lot of artifacts around that people could admire and 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 copy. I guess perhaps a bit more of an X factor is we don't know what culture this group might establish. And it seems like there's been like quite a range of how motivated different societies have been to like copy things from the past or to like copy their neighbors and how motivated they are by science, especially when it gets hard or like is perhaps a bit less directly practical. Yeah. Well, is there much that we can learn from from history about what's the possibility of them, like people volunteering to be stagnant through their culture? Right. Yeah. So I guess one response is that there will just be a diversity of cultures as there were kind of the first time around. Mm. And you might think, though it doesn't have to be true, that there's advantages to being a more technologically exploratory society. And so maybe there'll just be some selection for those societies. Mm. But even if not by chance and variation, just like happened the first time, you'd think that some would be more exploratory than others. Mm. And then examples the kind of first time around of cases where societies truly seemed extremely motivated to adopt technologies that they saw like modeled in other cultures. A really good one is Japan famously had the Meiji Restoration, where they not only just, they just decided after not having adopted technologies that had been around for centuries. Mm. So I think they were using swords to fight duels mm. um, instead of guns, which had existed for a long time. So they were just very technologically stagnant for political reasons. That was the preference yeah, they'd, as I recall, the emperor, was it emperor of Japan at that point? Uh, well, yeah, whoever was leading yeah. it, uh, they were not keen on Japan copying other countries. Um, they were like, Japan, yeah. we're the best. We're going to like close yeah. ourselves off and we keep have tradition. And yeah, yeah, exactly. It was a very it's an uh, active choice. Yeah, the culture of value tradition. So there's an example of culture really valuing non-technological progress. And then they decided they did want to modernize, I think inspired by seeing war fleets of other countries and realizing they were really at risk of mm. um, being invaded. I think, oh, yeah, I recall this is this amazing historical episode where like, so the Japanese didn't want to trade with anyone, basically. Yeah. I think there'd, there'd been some like temporary development of trade with Europe. And then they were again like, no, we don't, we don't like yeah. you guys. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> go, go, go to hell. And I think the Americans, <laughs> along with maybe it was just the Americans, they sent their Navy basically yeah. into the Bay of Tokyo and were like, you got to trade with us or we're going to attack you. And yeah, they, we're really big. Uh, like, here's yeah. a treaty, you got to sign it. Or we're, we're like, our Navy is just vastly better than yours. Right. And they were forced at the point of a gun yes. to like agree to trade with the rest of the world uh, so that like America could make money. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Okay. Anyway, they signed it. They weren't fans of it. But so, right. so then they changed their mind. Or they changed their approach. Right. And they decided they wanted to become as technologically advanced to become a comparable power. Yes. Mm. Um, and the thing that I found really interesting is that one, there was like a cultural shift that's kind of interesting, but the way they modernized so quickly is in part by sending Japanese scouts to European countries to observe different technologies in all sorts of different industries. So not just weapons and literally bring some of the technologies home to like be disassembled, better understood and then recreated. And it worked, right? And it worked. They modernized extremely quickly. I guess it seems like that's a standout case. It's, it seems so surprising for a culture, for a whole country to like turn on a dime here and go from maximum tradition to like, we got to modernize. I suppose there's a lot of military external pressure requiring it. I guess it, it's possibly a cultural stereotype uh, mm -hmm. or like maybe that's too salient here, but I guess it's like a very cohesive society that might have found it easier to like orient around a, yeah. a national mission being set. Right. Uh, and maybe 
even if they weren't using advanced industrial technology, they had the necessary social technology in a sense of like coordinating people right. in like very sophisticated ways and in institutions that perhaps allowed them to modernize more quickly than otherwise. But right. anyway, the broader point is they, they took a bunch of artifacts, they put them apart and they figured out how they yeah. worked. If um, anything, the, the point I can imagine taking from the fact that they turned on a dime is more like... It took a lot of social coordination to maintain the traditions they did for as long as they did. Mm-hmm. Like, that seems like the surprising That's the thing. the weird one. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Everyone else was slowly developing new technologies, like individuals in other societies were, mm. because it's actually really hard to suppress or whatever. That's my <laughs> my view of it is something like innovation was happening. Yeah. So I suppose it suggests if one place is innovating then over time they either become more powerful relative to others or other yeah. people have to copy. Yeah. Um, and that's and the I, kind of selection argument I so was pointing out earlier. Yeah. So you would need lots of humanity to converge around a like less pro-progress Yeah, approach. exactly. Seems hard to fathom. I guess I think I'm reminded the- of the thing from June where they have the, the war. So that in the June series, I think I've only read a tiny fraction of it. I like started it. Okay, yeah, it's a long, <laughs> so arduous long, book. Really <laughs> yeah, there's a movie coming up. Yeah. I was saving myself for the movie. Yeah. <laughs> but anyway, I think long before the book start, there's like an AI war, uh, I think called the Butlerian Jihad mm-hmm. uh, from memory. Hmm. And basically this is like, AI apocalypse war where like the humans win and defeat the AI mm. and then they ban computers forever. Yes. So that's the main story here for why yeah. culture would be averse to technological advancement. Yeah. And that just seems like for all humans that survived to indefinitely coordinate coordinate to suppress innovation just seems really like a hard story to tell again. Mm. So it's like all the individuals need to either agree, which seems hard and has never happened, um, <laughs> or you need the individuals who do agree to keep power, even though they're like, I guess you could think that they have access to a bunch of technology that allows them to maintain power. I mean, a big problem here is, well, I don't know, in my imagination, mm. I'm thinking, well, okay, let's say there's like a colony in South America, like is a Northern Hemisphere is a write-off, but there's like a colony <laughs> in South America, like some people in Africa and some people in New Zealand slash Australia. Over time, certainly over hundreds of years, they'll be spreading north. They'll be yeah. going like back to these like new places. Mm-hmm. And like necessarily the whole point is that the technology isn't such that it's like super easy to get to these places or to coordinate or to sure. have like the internet. Yeah. So it's like these places are going to become more like not going to be possible to be controlled from like Christchurch. Right, <laughs> so right, like, right. now you've got like the same kind of fragmentation that we had through almost all of human history until like right. the very modern era. Yeah. yeah, it's just really hard to imagine. Yeah, either universal agreement or universal control. We just haven't, we just haven't seen it. Yeah, I guess and in, it would be understandable perhaps if a very strong culture developed against nuclear weapons, for example, and then there was right. like, there was a huge fight over like whether to redevelop nuclear weapons or right. perhaps a massive effort to destroy them. But like even in the that seems June totally story, right, they get rid of AIs, with, yeah, yeah. but they don't get rid of, I don't know, cars right, <laughs> or exactly. spaceships as it turns out. But, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, Technology is in some ways not a cohesive concept yeah. where like, because one thing caused this terrible thing to happen to civilization. Like, mm. it wasn't all of technology. Yeah, it wasn't the plow. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, in a it? deep sense, maybe it was the plow. Right, right. Yeah. <laughs> it requires a lot of restraint to not use plows uh, right. because of the long-term consequences. Yes. <laughs> all right, so we've discussed how there would likely be a whole lot of artifacts that would give our descendants a big boost in the, in the post-apocalypse, and there'll be lots of information lying around that would help them out. 
and that it'll be pretty unlikely for everyone to avoid pursuing science and technology for, for a really extended period of time, uh, the kind of thing that would involve lots of coordination and culture not, not changing over time. I think the last reason, the last major reason that people raise for why we might recover slowly or not at all is resource scarcity. Us, uh, you know, ha- having used up things like fossil fuels and that being a big, imp- a big impediment to redevelopment. Yeah. Why aren't you convinced by, by that argument? Yeah, so it is true that we've used lots of fossil fuels. Um, There still are tons. It's also true that lots of the ones that are left, while there are tons, are much harder to access without the kinds of technology we have now. But there is at least a lot of coal that seems pretty accessible. So, for example, there's a mine in, I think it's Montana, that has more coal and it's surface coal. So it's coal that you could just like dig out with a shovel, Mm. has more coal than was used in the first, I think, 60 or 70 years of the Industrial Revolution Mm. from like 1770 to 1830, which is just already getting you a chunk of the way to then being able to harvest a bunch more, maybe slightly harder to access fossil fuel. Okay. So coal, there's still a lot of, I guess, I can't remember what, how much we've used of all of the coal that we think is out there. I think it's like closer to 10% than 100%. Uh, yeah, I think that's yeah. right. Yeah. Okay. So, so coal isn't such a big problem. So I guess if push came to shove, we could use coal as a fossil fuel as an alternative to oil. I guess there's benefits of liquid fuels, but again, it's like hard to see that that would be absolutely make or break for exactly. industrial civilization developing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I, I think there are methods for converting coal into, into oil. But yeah, I think that's true too. It's, it's a bit messy, but yeah. Yep. What about... I guess this, this raises the question. I, we're going to talk a bit more about climate change later, mm-hmm. but I suppose people might then worry that future groups rebuilding on the back of coal exclusively would end up doing themselves in by burning so much coal. And I guess, yeah, that actually seems kind of plausible if you like a back of the envelope suggests that if you burn, yeah. if you burn like two or three times as much coal as we've used so far again, then uh, we'd right. be in deep, deep trouble. Yeah. Any comments on that? Yeah. Yeah. I I think it basically is plausible. It seems like that's one possible outcome. I guess one thing pushing in the other direction is like, while on the one hand, I feel reasonably confident that there are enough fossil fuels to like kind of restart things, there will be less. And that will put even more pressure on recovering civilization to switch to alternatives. Hmm. And that will be a bit harder because at first there will be worse technology, but then it'll also be a lot easier because we'll already have examples of renewable energy technologies lying around. Yeah, And um, there are also just some, yeah, more renewable forms of energy that we aren't using much that don't require much technology at all that Mm. different countries rely much more on than Western countries. Mm. So Brazil, for example, makes tons of charcoal, which burns cleaner than fossil fuels and is just enormously yeah, kind of efficient. Mm. And we don't use it because it's harder to grow all the forests necessary to cut down the trees that you need to make into charcoal, which you mm. do by pyrolyzing wood. <laughs> um, what's, but what's pyrolyzing? It's like a form of converting like a wood or bark that has a certain carbon structure into a much denser carbon structure. It's like you kind of dehydrate it and turn you it into, you dehumidify it, it and then yeah. turn it into coal, basically, yeah, or exactly. something like coal. Basically yeah. an equivalent to coal. Yeah. Yeah. And that could easily supplement the Industrial Revolution. And if there was scarcity with fossil fuels, then like there would be even more incentive to use charcoal. And maybe that would even put us in a better place relative to where we are now. Hmm. Yeah, that's just like one alternative. The the situation you suggested also sounds totally plausible to me. 
Yeah, Especially, I guess, I guess, if there's like memory of the threat of climate change. Like mm. it's not like, like the first time around, that, yeah. we kind of didn't know what we were doing. The second time around, maybe we'd have more. We'd have a heads um, up. Yeah. Yeah, I guess we'll come back to this, but I can see kind of maybe three scenarios. One might be that they make kind of the same mistake that we did and don't do enough to reduce their reliance on coal soon enough just, yeah. just because they're foolish. So it was possible, but they didn't do it. Another scenario would be that actually they just do. They, they're able to switch over to, you know, I guess oil and gas. Uh, kind of like maybe they'll be able to like extract that again before yeah. too long. You've got examples of wind and solar that they can then copy. And then before too long, they're kind of in a similar situation to, to where we are, which is uh, bad, but not like necessarily catastrophic. Yeah. Um, and the third category would be, well, actually, we've now used up so much of the easily available oil and gas, say, and it's turned out to be really hard to reinvent, say, all the electronics that go into solar yeah. and nuclear and so on. You actually just need an enormous population, say, in order to be able to sustain those industries. Yeah. But then it uh, it actually isn't possible for them to reach a like low carbon energy system, or or at least like not not practical in the real world. Yeah. Yeah. I, so I guess, I guess I feel the pessimists are getting like a bit of a point here. Uh, yeah. 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 I completely agree. Yeah. It seems like that seems like one of the most possible routes to something like stagnation or a kind Oscillation. of oscillation. Yeah. Exactly. That yeah. that we can talk more about in a bit. Yeah. Okay. Any other resources other than coal that are, that are worth mentioning? Yeah. So people worry about phosphorus, which is in a lot of fertilizers mm. and is really important for the levels of crop yields that we have today. Mm. And originally we got it from, I think, guano. Um, so poop. yeah. <laughs> but built up um, on islands over very, very long periods of time. Exactly. Exactly. And yeah, I guess I've been told that that's been basically harvested. Yeah. So we'd basically be relying on phosphorus already in the environment. Mm. So we'd have to use dead plants, like let them decompose and then use them as fertilizer, which is definitely less efficient. Yeah. Um, eventually we get to the point where we are now, which is we invent technology again to be able to put phosphorus back into fertilizers more easily. Okay. So not having these piles of phosphorus lying around would be inconvenient. But again, it seems like agriculture can work without extra phosphorus it did for right. most of history, it did for I suppose. Most of history. Yeah. Uh, and so it's again an inconvenience uh, something that might slow us down a bit but it, how can this be make or break the access to like additional supplies of phosphorus given that there already is phosphorus in the environment in the soil uh, possibly would have to be more choosy exactly about where we farm but right. yeah shouldn't be the end of the world again yeah exactly uh, I think this is basically true of lots of resources that you can try to think of that might be limiting to the successor society or the recovering society. And basically, it's like there are a few things that seem pretty important and that we'd either need to access again or find good substitutes for. There are lots of things that are really important to the like level of abundance that we have today, but that exist at levels that are easily accessible that would be like enough to get recovery going mm. and then we could reach the level of technological sophistication we have to like get back up to these levels of abundance. Um, yeah. So that includes things like phosphorus, but also nitrogen, which mm. currently we have like really complex and energetically intensive uh, mm. systems for fixing nitrogen, which we'd lose, but we just still have environmental sources that would be like, again, more limited, but like enough to enough grow to get crops. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah. So we've got energy, which is this kind of flow resource, I mm -hmm. guess phosphorus and nitrogen are also kind of flow resources because we kind of, we concentrate them uh, mm -hmm. or we extract them and then we like let them dissipate. So it's like yeah, very yeah. hard to concentrate them again. Or yeah, it takes a lot of energy exactly in right. the case of nitrogen. And I'm not sure exactly how we do it with phosphorus, but uh, it's presumably some way. 
I guess there's another class of materials which are like stock materials like mm-hmm. steel or iron or aluminum, other stuff that we use, but then it's still there. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's just in our buildings now and maybe it's a pain in the ass to access it again. But I guess it, it was often a pain in the ass to get bronze and steel and, and iron and so on out of the ground in the first place. Totally. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So there's variation in exactly how hard it would be to reuse resources like that that are lying around. So, for example, I think, yeah, I should check which, but some metals that will like exist in cities, for example, you can just remelt. Mm. Um, this is true for some plastics too. Basically, like some things would just be like, make heat, melt the thing, make a new thing with the with the material. And then others are like, uh, I think rubber is an example where you like can't melt it down and remake the same thing. Mm. Heating it changes the structure or something in a way that changes the properties you're looking for. And so those we basically have to... Go again. Yeah. I see. Which is definitely annoying. Yeah. I mean, things like blast furnaces and like basically all the methods we use for metalworking they're like kind of complicated, but also have existed for at least a millennium yeah. um, in some societies. So they don't seem show-stopping to me. Yeah. I've seen these videos on, on YouTube of this guy. He never speaks, but yeah. he manages to go from having no resources whatsoever in a forest mm-hmm. to making a furnace of sorts that I think wow. he can... Yeah, where he's able to, for example, fire ceramics. And I, I think I haven't gotten to this video uh, yet, yeah. but I think he does start melting down metals and, and extracting metals, so using cool. this using this kiln. And, and he literally has gone out into the into the forest with with, with nothing except the knowledge wow. that he has in his head. I guess it's probably not at the level of a blast furnace, but uh, suggests right. that people. I mean, I think people did figure out that they could use heat to extract stuff from from the ground pretty early on. It's, yeah, it's, yeah, it was an early an early step. Right. Yeah, I think that's right. And um, yeah, Louis Dartnell has a great, going back to his book, The Knowledge, has a chapter on harnessing heat. I think that's the unifying theme. But he basically describes how to build a kiln. And the great thing about a kiln is it holds heat so well that you can get to like 1500 degrees or something Mm. like extremely high temperatures. Mm. And then once you have those temperatures, you can make things like cast iron or like Mm. things that you basically can't make over a fire. But the way he does this is by like, first you have to build the bricks Mm. and the bricks have to be able to sustain that heat. And the way you build the bricks is also by like, I think it's by creating like a somewhat more makeshift kiln that can also reach temperatures high enough to fire bricks. Mm. And so it's basically this process of like... um, It's like a success spiral. Yeah, 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 exactly. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Yeah. And there are similar examples in metalworking. There are like kind of cool books and videos actually similar to the one you're talking about where a like skilled metal worker shows how with scraps of metal he can create a whole metalworking shop just by first building tools like screws and Mm. lathes, basically. And then by like building the rudimentary things, you can build much more complex things. And I think it really demystified... Yeah, I can't imagine what it's like to build a blast furnace, but all of these processes do kind of happen in incremental steps. And each one, once I learned a bit more about it, I was like... Oh, I can imagine going from that from the thing before. That sounds it makes a lot of very sense. doable to me. Yeah, yeah. You don't you don't have to like reinvent complex technologies. You like invent small things. Maybe you find the small things like screws lying around, mm. and that means you go even faster. But it is much more incremental than I think I intuitively had mm. in mind. Are there any other resources that are worth mentioning that you that you looked into at least briefly? Yeah. So I did think about glass. 
basically you make sand incredibly hot to make glass. Mm. And the first glass ever was lightning would strike sand Mm. and it would create these shards of glass that could then be worked um, at high temperatures. And basically that's just how people realized glass was a thing and began Mm. to use it. And that gets you to some like pretty advanced technologies like Mm. lenses and yeah, lenses for for viewing really tiny things, lenses for making eyesight better. It also allows you to make windows. So glass doesn't seem like a scarce resource, though I'm not sure. I haven't thought much about whether you could melt it down from existing windows or something. But I think it's something that would like... seem necessary. Yeah, yeah exactly, exactly. Yeah. Um, Silicon's underrated. It's highly rated, but maybe just an <laughs> underrated element. Yeah. So many uses. <laughs> yes, really, really, <laughs> the, the, yeah. The, yeah, the little building block that could. Um, <laughs> Yeah. Any, anything else worth mentioning or should we move on? Basically, I yeah. guess it seems like a lot of people talk about this resource scarcity thing as being an impediment. And maybe at first blush, it sounds plausible, but then it just seems like it's another one that the more you inspect it, the more it melts away into air. Yeah, that sounds right. I think fossil fuels are kind of the most plausible, especially in a scenario where it's like the 10th collapse catastrophe, mm. Mm. Um, maybe even more than 10th. I'd actually, I could look back. I did a few calculations to be like, at what point? would we like just actually have run out of fossil fuels if we like repeated the exact same process? Mm. Yeah, several times in a row. But it just looks like we at least have another go, if not many more goes. Yeah, interesting. I guess there are still some oil wells that uh, Mm -hmm. produce oil uh, relatively Mm -hmm. straightforwardly. And I guess we're imagining them rebuilding with a much lower population than we have now. So they could at least get started with that kind of thing. Exactly. Yeah, you either have large enough populations that you're not losing nearly as much technology and you're pulling things out more easily, or you have tiny populations and you barely, you don't need much. Okay, so we've handled or we've discussed all of the main streams of reasons that people offer for why we might, even in the long term, not really recover to, to where we are today. We're kind of skeptical about all of them. Taking now the assumption that we're right about that, and indeed mm-hmm. uh, we would recover, how fast could we expect population to rebound uh, right. if, if things go well? Yeah, so basically population growth, I guess it's kind of an example of how hard it is to grasp or how hard like it is to intuitively understand how quick competitive growth is. Mm. But if you if you think the population would grow at the fastest level that it ever has, which is in the 1960s, that was about 2.2% per year, mm. then you'd get about a tenfold increase in population every 100 years. So if uh, if you lost 90% of the population, you'd be back to current levels uh, within 100 years. Mm. And then if you think that population is going to grow slower, so maybe the level it did when humans were just agriculturalists, Mm -hmm. then you could recover a population from 90% population loss to current levels in about 240 years, which Mm -hmm. is still really, really fast. Yeah, it's kind of shockingly fast or... It seems like it should take ages. Uh, but yeah. I, yeah. I suppose it's just the, the magic of exponential growth exactly. means that it doesn't take quite as long as you think. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. If people can keep uh, keep having kids at a decent clip. Exactly. Yeah. So even the most kind of pessimistic scenarios I think we thought of were if 99.999% of people died, which is a huge number of people dying, then at kind of that 1%, so agriculturalist level of population growth, you'd still expect 
the population to reach current levels in about 1,200 years. Okay. So I, I suppose we, we could compound all these scenarios into an even more pessimistic one where you have 99.9% yeah. gone and you're only growing at the hunter-gatherer level, yeah. which was 0.1%. Yeah, that's Might right. I just, uh, have a Please, yeah. How long would it take? We just paused the recording and uh, did the calculation and would get back to the original population in 7,000 years. Wow. Uh, I guess maintaining a 0.1% population growth rate the entire time just seems really very impossible. strange. Yeah, because it's so, well, it seems like it should either be below zero or yeah. more above zero than that. That's just like knife edge right. level. Um, That's like, it would be really surprising if at 6 billion, hmm, we were still, still going. <laughs> at like hunter-gatherer levels of growth rates. Yeah, yeah. I guess even then, like 7,000 years, it's not it's not so long. So that shows that even, even on a very negative case scenario, it's still very, very, very possible to rebuild. Yep. I, suppose I, I don't have a great intuition for whether we should expect population growth to be fast or slow in the rebuilding stage relative to what it was historically. So on the one hand, you've got all of the chaos and problems created by the original catastrophe, which yep. presumably would hold people back, at least in the immediate term. On the other hand, that would be recovering all of these technologies potentially really like a lot faster than we, than we invented them the first time around. Right. And at the same time, we're in this massive disequilibrium with the number of people right. relative to the size of the earth. Exactly. Uh, and, I guess, and, and especially if we had like massive population loss, like more than 90%, 99 right. or 99.9%, then there's just so much space for people to spread out. It's like everywhere is a frontier uh, right. to, to go and do much more farming. Uh, exactly. Unless we've somehow completely trashed the earth. But I think even nuclear, even nuclear war doesn't reduce long-term farming capacity really hardly at all. No, no, not, not beyond a decade. Yeah. Yeah. So it's guess it's possible that the regrowth rate could be faster than 2.3%. Uh, yeah. Maybe instead what we should look at the population growth rate among farmers, say, settling an area where they were able to just kill everyone who was already there and then just, like, settle it themselves. Right. Uh, I don't know how fast that was, but, I mean, I think the population growth in the in the early United States was extremely fast. Yeah, I was going to say the Americas would probably be a good case study to look at. And I don't actually know exactly what the population growth was there, but I think you're totally right. I mean, like... On the one hand, there might be some cultural pressures against having kids. It's just I guess like they could have sad. Birth control earlier. Uh. That's true. I guess even then, you have plenty of societies that have birth control today that still have much higher birth rates than other countries with birth control. Yeah. And so, so then we're back to this argument that even if most, even if the mainstream of society develops a culture that exactly. doesn't uh, support having, you know, more than two children, right. say, then some subgroups will have that culture and exactly. then eventually they will end up being most of the population before too long. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All that has to happen is that not everyone agrees to have as few kids as possible, or like not have very many kids. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, I think that's enough on population regrowth rates. So people can go and check out your blog post if they want even more permutations of different scenarios and how long it would take. Yeah. Maybe just to wrap up this section on you know, indirect routes to extinction, how long it would take to, to recover and the problems in the meantime. What's the biggest doubt you have about the lines of argument that, that you're pursuing here? That like, How would you be most likely to be wrong, perhaps? Yeah. In general, I think I'm biased toward optimism. So I'm like more likely to think that if something is technologically possible, it will also be what happens, hmm. um, especially if it like seems intuitively advantageous for it to. And that's not always the case. Yeah. So I guess something like in some systematic ways, the survivors are like much worse at taking advantage of all the things working in their favor than I predicted. I guess another, which we'll talk about soon is like most of the scenarios we've talked about so far have effects that are kind of limited to a time period. Mm. Um, and if there are 
yeah, if there are catastrophes that have effects that last thousands or tens or hundreds of thousands of years. Like the disaster doesn't go away. Exactly. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. If it's just like, oh, the world's just worse now. And mm. like, maybe humanity can't rebuild agriculture because it's just forever going to be too cold or mm. forever going to be too hot or forever and, going to have acid rain. And we can't learn to adapt to it somehow or yeah. evolve to be able to cope with it. Yeah. And so I think that's kind of an un- unknown, unknown set of scenarios. Yeah. I guess... Just the other stream of doubts might be something that we haven't thought of uh, once, yeah. once again. It doesn't seem like these arguments are very persuasive, though some of them get some weight. But maybe there's maybe there's some other argument that hasn't hasn't been raised yet. Yeah. It's just, uh, there's, there's a lot of arguments that one could make in this space. Right. Yeah, yeah, it feels, it feels endless. Yeah, maybe um, an example of that is just the resources. Maybe mm. there really are some showstoppers without substitutes that I haven't thought of. Yeah. Um, could we rebuild without Netflix? So, <laughs> inquiring minds want to know. Yeah. Okay. Uh, pushing on. Let's talk about whether this has any implications about what we ought to do uh, in, sure. the, in the here and now. This wasn't at all the focus of the project. Here, you were just trying to yeah, kind right. of produce forecasts. But it's possible that incidentally, you've thought of some things that it w- might be helpful for us to do now. Yeah. Do, do you think there's any low-hanging fruit that we should engage in to try to make it easier, perhaps, to recover in future after a severe catastrophe? Yeah, so there are the like advantages that I talked about. So this is like stuff flying around and examples of useful technologies that'll be left over, I think will be helpful. Um, But there are ways to just make it easier to just hand them to survivors. And I haven't thought that much about what these are, but like a great example of this already being thought of and existing is the seed bank in mm. Norway. I think. Norway, yeah. thanks. Svalbard. Yeah, yeah. yes, yeah, Svalbard, exactly. But, I, so, I, think, I think London has a pretty good seed bank as well. Oh, really? Um, although I guess that one's going up in smoke in the nuclear scenario. But. <laughs> yeah, exactly. yeah, right. So actually kind of on that vein, thinking more about where we want to conserve both physical resources and information given the types of catastrophes that we think are likely, like maybe a nuclear war between Western countries or or just countries in the global north. Mm. Yeah, thinking about what things we want to keep. So the seed bank does a great job of keeping heirloom seeds, which are seeds that do produce viable seeds when mm. grown, like prioritizing those seeds, keeping in like a similar vein, stocks of things that would be both useful to use and also useful to learn from mm. in like a more intentional and curated way, like on the same theme of like banks, mm. like what do we want the Technology bank banks? Yeah, exactly. Here's, exactly. Lo- here's tons of artifacts, all nicely conserved. Exactly. They're going to last quite a long time. And next to each thing is a book describing exactly. how it works. A plaque or a book even better. Exactly. Yeah. And then just being deliberate about distributing those globally and Sticking like... Sticking them under mountains and yeah, places making that sure they get preserved. And... I would love one on a sub. I'd love yeah. one in Antarctica. Who knows? <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. So something a bit more strategic there. I think there are concrete things that can be done to make infrastructure more resilient. Mm. And there are like organizations and cities trying to make their infrastructure more robust to things like cascading power outages caused by weather or something. And probably there are like really targeted things you could do to make infrastructure have fewer interdependencies so that it's like easier to bring back online if like one part failed but yeah, this is something on the level of city governments or even state governments having to think this through. But again, we're like currently we're doing great things on on infrastructure resilience, but only for types of disasters that are like pretty small scale. So like storms, basically. Yeah. Um, and if we just thought a little bit harder about 
these large scale disasters, there might be some low hanging fruit, though I don't know all about what they would be. The electrical grid resiliency we've talked about at least once on the show before with, with mm-hmm. David Rudman because he was yeah, looking right. into the solar SOM stuff. Yeah. Um, I think since that interview, there has been a bit of talk about this and there are some people doing experiments trying to design, I guess it's transformers, uh, right. one of the weak points. Uh, yep. There's discussion among electrical engineers and people who run these grids about this kind of thing. I suspect it, relative to what's optimal, it's not enough. But if you were someone who had relevant expertise, that's a group that you could potentially try to join in on, on that conversation of how totally. to protect ourselves against EMPs or against solar storms. I guess... The project to like distribute technology and information into lots of locations, convenient locations around the world, and then make sure that people know that they can go find that information there should the worst happen. That seems like something that, you know, <laughs> a listener among this, if they don't have a job, like they could potentially get, get going on that. I suppose it would, it would cost some money to, or I guess to, to actually implement it. Uh, yeah. It would cost a bunch of money. You have to, I don't know, build, build a vault bunkers. or whatever. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. But to start producing the plans and start producing the materials in order to then be able to say, well, this is what we would put in there. And I want to make a pitch that this is worth doing to, to some big philanthropist or a government. I don't, yeah, it seems like surprisingly easy perhaps to, to just start working on it basically. Or, and, then, and then maybe other people could join in. Yeah, I basically think that's right. Yeah, some like components of the project would be maybe like interviewing experts to see what kinds of technologies you'd want stored, like thinking about the types of knowledge. So like which books you'd want to have, maybe going back and reading Lewis Tartnell's The Knowledge Mm. and thinking of more examples of things like heirloom seeds Mm. or yeasts or things that it would just be kind of a leapfrog, Mm. uh, save you, yeah, save you some trouble to have stored somewhere. So like thinking of the things is one step. Building the things is obviously a costly step. Deciding where to put the things, I think would be, I think would be really achievable. Um, I think it's like, in general, you can't go wrong with like distributed all over the world. And then there's some pretty clear other factors that might push you toward certain places that don't, yeah, that I think you could just kind of work out. Mm. Like places that seem like they'd be more likely to have survivors. And then governments have plans that you can download online that are like, what should I do if there are massive kind of disasters that force me to leave my home? And mm. basically there, maybe there aren't services for a long time. And if you just included a bit like I can imagine advocating for something to be inserted into those plans, that's like just a location of where these vaults are or something. Mm. Yeah, you might not really. I think I think there's just actually quite a lot of abandoned vaults out there in the world. Mm. And I th- as I understand it, Switzerland has just enormous space in its uh, vaults. They, they had some plan where all of Switzerland was meant to be able to fit in vaults like simultaneously if there was a nuclear war. That's wild. I've never heard should, that. Maybe you should go fact check that. Okay. But I think it's like yeah, it was, it's absolutely bananas uh, the amount of like space that they have. Huh. Um, yeah, I, I think the reason that the you know stockpile of knowledge and materials, the reason that it feels like it's something that hobbyists could work at, is perhaps because it's not going to expire. Like if you could come up with a great plan for that now, and then you kind of put it on ice for ten years, it seems like the plan would probably still be quite reasonable ten years later. So you don't have to kind of bring together all of the aspects of it simultaneously. Right. Uh, as long as people who are going to take that project forward in future realize that there's a prior art that's been done that they should just yeah. uh, just grab in the first place. Yeah. Right. Yeah. You could design the vault. And come up with an inventory for everything in it. Hmm. And you just you just have that and then someone else could implement it and maybe add two technologies that we've come up with since. And that'd yeah. be pretty great. Yeah. Uh, for those who are curious, we, we discussed an even more extreme case of this in a second interview with Paul Cristiano, where we talked about how would you leave a message, not just for you know 100 or 1,000 years away, but a million years in the future. And that turns out to be a lot more challenging. <laughs> uh, but, uh, but Paul Cristiano had, had some ideas for how you might do it. Oh, that's so cool. 
on the other stream uh, you're raising about making making things more resilient now or making things have less interdependencies, mm. just you know, California and the EU they actually regularly pass you know rules about criteria that electronics have to meet around privacy yeah, or around you know right. interconnectivity. I wonder whether there should be a rule that say all totally. cars or like all of these devices have to be able to continue operating yeah. without the internet. Right, um, that's a we great just don't one. want all of these things to disappear. Yeah, uh, like yeah, suddenly yeah. like start malfunctioning after some period of time in an unforeseen way because right. they, they lost internet. Yeah. I mean, lots of the interdependencies are, I mean, they're just financially advantageous. You get huge gains in efficiency when you basically you're like adding in complexity mm. and the complexity is buying you efficiency. And so it would just take a bit of regulation to be like, you can't have that much complexity. It makes mm. the system too fragile. Mm. And then I can totally imagine, like I can imagine a ballot campaign in California that's mm. like, make the power grid robust to mm. like two important disasters that seem reasonably plausible. Mm. And it maybe it involves some like trip wires that make it so that like a blackout in one place doesn't cause blackout in another, which is like very plausibly would happen given most current cities infrastructures. Yeah. Yeah. I think uh, I can imagine a California ballot initiative. I think that might become a joke line after a while. <laughs> it seems like you can, you can pass almost anything on a, on a California right. ballot initiative at this point. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, yeah, I mean, maybe that's part of the beauty of ballot initiatives is it allows specific states to try all kinds of wacky stuff. Uh, totally. that, that sounds good to people. Yeah. Yeah. So any other low hanging fruit we should potentially consider that you've struck on? Yeah. I mean, I think David Denkenberger talked about food stocks. Mm. We used to have way more. It'd probably be good if we had way more again. It'd probably be good if more countries had more. Um, And that, I don't know how hard that'd be to advocate for, but yeah, it's something that we're doing worse on than we were even 40 years ago. Mm. So it just seems like we could improve upon that again. I guess in general, I'm like in favor of all the research being done into alternative foods. Mm. Um, I don't know exactly what will work. I know Alfred works on this. I yeah, I'm actually interviewing him next week. So uh, are you? Yeah, maybe. Great, I'll leave it to to him. (laughs) Yeah, perfect, perfect. Yeah, but I basically think it would be great if there were some blueprints for how to make food if it's really cold or really hot. Anything else? I don't know. We used to joke morbidly. So like when I was looking at the absolute worst case scenarios where like we're down to tens of thousands of people, I was looking for ways that those people might be systematically worse at rebuilding society than larger groups that are more randomly selected across the world. And I was like, okay, who are the people if we're down to 10,000? Maybe it's people in submarines. Maybe it's people disproportionately in the military or maybe the opposite. Hmm. But Yeah, I joked with some colleagues that if it was submarines that made up disproportionate numbers of survivors, we'd have, I think, a ratio of like one woman to 99 men. Mm. So even just like, yeah, I don't actually know if this is like low hanging fruit worth plucking or like something to take seriously, but like... Having a more equal ratio on on nuclear subs. Yeah, could could be good from multiple perspectives. Yeah. Yeah, someone on Twitter had this question for you. How has Louise's research on civilizational collapse affected her views on long-termism or intra-long-termist cause prioritization? Yeah, nice. I guess the main way is that for the most part, relative to where I was before looking into it, I think relatively fewer resources should go to catastrophes that would cause something like collapse, but not extinction. And so I guess maybe that kind of includes nuclear war and maybe natural pandemics. Mm. 
I still think more should be going to those things than are currently going to those things. Mm. Um, it's not that I think like long-termists shouldn't think they're important, but relative to something like AI risk, or even just, there are some like speculative causes, like making sure that technology doesn't stagnate and that we actually kind of realize the potential of kind of sentient flourishing or something. And well, perhaps that values don't yeah, yeah, values yeah. the other one. Yeah, making sure that if we do last for a really long time, we don't do so with really horrible values mm. um, or that we at least don't miss out on like some amazing ones. Mm. So I guess those just seem a bit more important to me. But I do worry that this might be interpreted as meaning that I don't think it's great for people to work on catastrophes that would cause collapse. Mm. And yeah, I think I still just like, if there's a great position for you in one of those fields, and that seems like your comparative advantage or something that you'd be especially good at working on, that seems amazing. Mm. And yeah, again, want more resources on all of these problems on the margin. Yeah, I guess two factors there are, although we feel pretty good about our chances of recovering, we can't be sure. Oh, it's like totally. maybe we're like 90% confident, even 99% confident that might not be dispositive in terms of what you ought to or to decide to do with your career. Yeah, And I guess- as we talked about recently in the episode with Carl Schulman, there's other reasons, like other moral values that you might have for right. wanting to prevent 99% yeah. of people dying other than it prevents the long-term future of humanity going to space and things like that. Absolutely. We might just not want that to happen for all kinds of yeah. other reasons. Maybe it would just be terrible if 7.7 billion people died. Yeah. That does seem unimaginably awful. Yeah, I guess... It does still seem like the recovery collapse, recovery collapse cycle mm-hmm. still seems like a live option. Yeah. And actually, we're about to talk uh, talk about the boom and bust climate change stuff in a minute, which uh, right. which does leave open this option that even if we don't go completely extinct, we might fail to achieve humanity's full potential due to a collapse or a, or a series of them. Yeah, yeah. No, I think that is still a live option. And yeah, and I and there are like some scenarios, and again, the unknown unknowns that give me pause enough that these still seem terrible. Mm. And I mean, it would be terrible to be wrong in a bunch of different ways would not want to yeah find out i'm wrong because we in fact go extinct <laughs> because well, you i be told everyone to exactly exactly <laughs> but maybe i'd be one of the final five and i'd be like yeah. darn it i should have had should have yeah. told people to invest more in this <laughs> should have put my money in phosphorus exactly um cool all right, let's push on and talk about climate change for a bit. I guess we've been we've been teasing this uh, over, over the last uh, half hour, but yeah. I think people are going to really enjoy the, enjoy this section. So I saw a preview of this long-termist book that Will is writing, and I guess that you've been a major contributor to, and he spends some time trying to come up with kind of worst-case scenarios for climate change, I guess as part of his project of thinking about what if long-termism as a like moral view is an important, is an important point, but we're not in an especially urgent moment right now. Say, so, you know, we, we shouldn't expect AI to revolutionize things anytime soon. And in that case, it seems like climate change is going to be high up on the list of things that we'd be talking about from a long-termist point of view. Of course, yeah, one variable is how responsive the climate is to carbon emissions. That is to say kind of how many degrees of warming you get if you double CO2 concentrations in, yep. in, in the atmosphere. But the part of the book that I saw focuses on a slightly different angle, which Will and you call boom and bust cycles. Yeah, can you explain in brief what is the underlying structure of a boom and bust scenario? And then I guess what were the two possible ways that that could happen that, that, that you all envisaged? Sure. Yeah. And uh, I'll just give lots of credit to, well, to Will, of course, and then also to John Halstead, who mm. I think was probably more involved than me on this. But yeah, so in brief, 
boom and bust refers to, well, the boom refers to using a bunch of fossil fuels, which translate to high emissions and high temperature effects and other climate effects. And then the bust, at least broadly, is referring to, for some reason, not being able to bring like carbon in the atmosphere back down mm. to make those climate changes tolerable, mm. uh, mitigated. And specifically, Will and John, I think, came up with two ways that that could happen. So in one scenario, you have a kind of, I think Will calls it the rise and fall scenario, which is, I think he's alluding to Rome, where there's no single catastrophe that means that we don't have climate mitigating technologies. It's just that our technological progress on climate mitigation stagnates before we're able to get to the whatever level necessary it is to get to carbon neutral. And then to like, I guess, suck more carbon out of the atmosphere to get temperature levels even lower if if we've already gone up higher than we want to be. So that's one. The other one is a bust caused by some kind of catastrophe. And I think Will calls this one a double catastrophe, hmm. where the first catastrophe is something like, I think his best guess at how this happens is something like there's a great power conflict hmm. that is both demanding of technological innovation and attention. So like brain power, I think the example he uses is like, well, yeah, I think basically he's imagining a scenario where much of our resources are being devoted to developing new military technologies to like basically win some arms race. And because arms races are super energy intensive, um, we're also burning maybe even more fossil fuels than we would otherwise. Mm. And at the same time, that conflict is so is so politically charged that we are not following through with climate agreements. Mm. And so basically we just stop trying to bring carbon levels down and in fact are like increasing them. And then maybe that particular conflict becomes like a hot conflict by which I mean like war actually erupts. And maybe, yeah, it could be a nuclear war, it could be use of bioweapons, but something causes society to collapse more significantly in kind of like a single event. And then in that scenario, you've had all this carbon being released into the atmosphere making everything hot and without a way to take it out. So things are just going to keep getting hotter. Mm. And you're now in a collapse scenario where we don't have the technology we'd need to, again, pull it out. And I think because we don't have the technology to pull it out, I guess that, yeah, I guess the idea there is like, it's basically too hot um, in almost all areas of the world mm. to, well, one, to exist without air conditioning as humans, but also to have livestock without air conditioning and then also to grow some types of crops. Mm. And we don't have air conditioning technology. So we're, <laughs> um, we're like really... Really, in a, really in a tricky spot. Exactly, yeah. yeah. So broadly, the story here is that you're searching for what are the ways that climate change could be the worst? Because if climate change went extremely badly, and I guess if it was complemented with another disaster as well, then the people who are trying to recover from this disaster could find themselves with such an inhospitable climate that it really slows them down or maybe just prevents them from getting back to where we are. So we're on the search for what's, how could things get worse? Yeah. And then setting aside the climate responsiveness to carbon, which is kind of just a scientific fact that's out of uh, human control or right. not, is, is not affected by geopolitics. Yeah. Then we need to think, wow, what's ways that the next 200 years could go such that we emit a hell of a lot and then at the end of it, we don't really, <laughs> we don't really have much to show for it. Yeah. And I guess on scenario one, we've got like a long-term stagnation where productivity growth is, is pretty low. So humanity is not really advancing. Like AI turns out to be a pretty lame, doesn't, that doesn't actually accomplish all that much. And maybe green technology turns out to be, or like solar and wind turns out to be very hard to integrate into the grid, for example. So we turn back to fossil fuels more than ever. 
while at the same time not really like getting that much of a of, of an economic boost from it because we're not inventing uh, new right. uh, new things that make life better or make us able to to do more. And then I guess at the end of that, you could just have kind of any disaster or plausibly just we've emitted so much carbon now by burning like a large fraction of all of the coal that is there in pursuit of trying to make our lives better despite technological stagnation right. uh, that now we've got 17 degrees of warming and, right. we're, and we're, we're pretty toast. And that causes like a gradual, yeah, possibly even just a gradual decline of, yeah, of, exactly. of humanity. And then, it, then it's very hard to rebuild because we can kind of only live comfortably on the Antarctic. Exactly. In the second scenario... We've got kind of a Cold War potentially between two large powers. I'll let the audience guess which is most likely. And then, <laughs> uh, in order to uh, keep up with one another, they're just they're saying, wow, climate change, that's a problem for next century. We are going to just like burn, burn, burn all of this stuff in order to in order to keep up rather than wasting money building solar panels. And then all of the people who are working on or most of the scientists working on green power are instead building like new weapons. And then maybe they do go to war eventually. And now we've got an enormous amount of carbon emissions from before hanging over us while at the same time, <laughs> massively reduced population and infrastructure. Yeah. How, how likely do you think these things are? Did you get more worried working on this on this chapter? Yeah. Yeah, I think I did. I think these are basically, I don't know how likely they are, but they're like plausible, which is not a place I got to with most of the other attempts I made at telling these stories for like how we could actually get to extinction. Mm. So I guess, yeah, I guess with the rise and fall scenario, which is the one where we we keep emitting, we like think technology is going to help us get out of it, but it doesn't. And then we, I mean, we're basically just in a hotter, hotter world and we're not getting more technology out of it because it's for some reason too hard. And there maybe there are lots of reasons to play there. Then I guess we we get lower and lower levels of economic growth and this lasts a really long time. And yeah, I mean, I'm trying to imagine, I guess population you'd think would start to decline because it'd be, you'd have like a lower, lower quality of life and people's quality of life would just get lower. They'd have fewer kids. And then eventually probably there'd be a kind of catastrophe or like like starvation and or not necessarily starvation but famine hmm. and i don't really i guess i imagine this is more of a slow petering out and not necessarily people dying of starvation but at least for a while population declining and declining and declining because hmm. it doesn't or no one's like willing to use a resource to have kids hmm. yeah i'm trying to figure out how we get all the way to extinction from that do you have ideas yeah, I guess extinction is a high level, but I suppose you can imagine a scenario where, yeah, population is way down on where it was. With 17 degrees of warming, then we really are just confined to such a small area that yeah. maybe the population isn't at the level where you can support like a sufficient industrial base yeah. to be doing things like leaving Earth. Right, right. I guess it's like, I can't really imagine extinction, but you can easily imagine if it just stops technological progress mm. uh, such that it basically rules out most of the potential for human civilization, then that's just about as bad. Yeah. Yeah, I guess we could imagine these humans stuck on on Antarctica, if we're talking for a very long period of time, mm -hmm. wouldn't they eventually like have an interest in doing geoengineering or something in order to reduce the temperature? Yeah. But I guess I haven't really put any thought into that. So yeah, that's, that, yeah, that, that feels a little bit far down in the, in right, the scenario right. uh, envisioning. So with both of these, well, I guess we can call them the low productivity growth and the Cold War scenario. Mm -hmm. Each of like the, the, the component pieces is plausible, mm -hmm. but maybe like together, like all of the pieces to go together, it's a bit of a conjunction that doesn't seem very likely. Hmm. Uh, so I guess I don't think that it's very likely that we'll see low productivity growth over the next 100 or 200 years. Yeah. And I guess probably over that length of time, Will probably doesn't either, though he's more pessimistic about artificial intelligence than, than I am. Right. But yeah, so it has to go on for quite a long time. Then we also have to think that 
we're like not close enough now to coming up with substitutes for coal. And so coal is going to continue to be cost competitive or right. or the cheapest thing for like many decades, possibly right. a century or something. Yep. That also kind of seems a bit unlikely to me. It seems yeah. like we're already on the cusp of these other options being better in a bunch of different yeah. ways. Yeah. And it's not only climate change that is causing people to move away from coal. It's the fact that it's incredibly bad for health is making yep. countries like India and China, yeah, as definitely. well as the US and Europe, want to get rid of coal as soon as it's practical to get right. an alternative that isn't horrifically expensive. Yeah, yeah, that sounds right to me. There are like lots of stories for why we might expect technological stagnation. Our ideas getting harder to find and kind of a unit of progress taking many, many more researchers than it used to. But you do just have to believe that it's going to take an extremely long time to get the kind of gains from AI that we think we'll get. And that I guess that like all of the terrible climate change things will happen before we get back to higher productivity, which, yeah, I personally, I personally don't believe, but I don't feel confident ruling yeah. it out. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, I guess biotech also has to be a bust, uh, which would be... Would That's be true. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so it's like neither of those things seems likely, but neither of them seems super, super implausible either. Yeah. So it's So it's worrying, I guess. Yeah. I guess one more on the stagnation mm-hmm. one is that we also don't figure out how to do geoengineering in a way that's tolerable. Right. And I guess also we, you know, we we go past five degrees of warming and we just continue to do the same thing. We still don't we still don't come to any sort of agreement. And I guess like again, those two things are also plausible individually. But then now now we've added kind of four different right. uh, criteria. Yeah, and the more criteria you get, the less yeah. likely it seems. The yeah. conjunction seems less less likely. Yeah, you're, it's a good point about geoengineering, given that it seems a bit unsettlingly easy to come up with ways to do geoengineering yeah. you know, for small groups. Certainly at the point where we're talking about warming on that level where it's causing, you know, a 90% loss of carrying capacity. It seems right. like now really the lesser evil is the geoengineering. Yeah, it's right. hard to tell a story where people wouldn't give it a crack. Yeah, I agree with that. Then on the Cold War scenario, again, a mm-hmm. uh, lot of tension between US and China seems very mm-hmm. plausible. At the same time, the US and the Soviet Union, I think, had like a much more intense Cold War than I would expect between the US and mm-hmm. China because the US and Soviet Union had far more conflicting ideologies and, mm-hmm. and priorities and designs for the for the planet as a whole. Whereas it seems like the US and China, they have tension over a bunch of different issues, but they don't have like fundamentally conflicting goals. Right. Like the US doesn't think that it wants to take over China ideologically or otherwise, and China doesn't feel that way about the US. Yep. So how long can they really just be you know, at one another's throats? And right. even during the, the, the Cold War between the US and the Soviet Union, it's not as if they like burnt all of the coal that they could or yeah. diverted anywhere near 100% of right. GDP towards military uh, yeah, stuff. I think yeah, I used to know these facts. Yeah, we'll, we'll maybe go take a look at a graph at uh, military spending as a fraction of GDP for yeah. the US and, and USSR. But as I recall, it kind of capped out somewhere around 10% and then came down from there once they built up their, their nuclear stockpiles. So it's a lot of resources, mm-hmm. but, you know, <laughs> the US spends 17% yeah. of its GDP on healthcare now. Right. Uh, so it's not like completely revolutionary. And I don't really see much appetite, you know, even now with all the saber rattling about China for going even from 4 to 8% of GDP on, on military right. spending or anything like that. Yeah. It also seems like the kind of conflict that I'd be in would not be one that is primarily about material or primarily uh-huh. about like sending lots of tanks against one another right. or things that require burning tons of fuel. It seems like they're more concerned about strategic things like missiles, it's uh, fighter jets, it's like cyber, cyberspace stuff. Right, right, right. Yeah, yeah, that sounds right to me. Also, do you happen to know what the like, what country has spent the greatest percentage of its GDP on war at one time? 
Ah, I think uh, this might have been in your notes somewhere. Yeah, I thought I, I, it I was. Like Japan. I think it's Japan, I think, and I think it was really high. Yeah, Japan during World War II in 1943 yeah. and 1944, where their backs were gradually getting put up against yeah. the wall and they saw that they were going to lose. I think they were spending more than half of GDP. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, okay. That's like a very abnormal, that's like total war right. at the point where you're just about to lose. It's hard to see how they would sustain such an intense right. rivalry for decades, long exactly. enough to burn all of this coal. Right. And then it's hard to see if they actually got into a fight, how the fight would last long enough because they've got such weapons that they would yeah. quickly cease to be functional countries. Right, right. Yeah, yeah. It's hard to imagine the Cold War bit. Yeah, both being that energy intensive and that prolonged, yeah. um, that climate change would get significantly, significantly worse. Yeah, yeah. so... Anyway, so this is kind of the skepticism that I was bringing to it. Although, again, yeah. I don't think I don't think it's a. If you were talking about like unlikely but possible things, this seems yes. like it should certainly be, I think be, it's be on the list, which is uh, which is I guess why it's uh, ended ended up in the book. Yeah, exactly. Um, are there any reasons that we haven't mentioned to think that it's plausible that we could have technological or economic stagnation in the twenty first or twenty second century? Yeah, yeah. So I think. It's Tyler Cowen who talks about the possible great stagnation, which maybe we're already seeing signs of, where Mm. basically incremental technological progress takes a lot more kind of like research person hours than than it used to, possibly because the low-hanging fruit of like insights Mm. and inventions have been plucked. Mm. And so now we're just working on much harder problems. So empirically, there's some there's like some evidence for this. Let's see. I think there are some in agriculture where additional improvements to agricultural yields take many times more researcher years than they did several decades ago. Mm. Um, And so that's kind of this like several decades ago, there were like really promising new technologies that a couple of people could discover. Mm. Whereas now we have teams and companies and and like this is harder to get teams to work together well. Yeah. Yeah. And just like we found the like really intuitive technologies and the next technologies that like might be out there. They don't jump as easily to the human mind. Yeah, exactly. Mm. So there's one reason. It's also the case that relative to several decades ago, when a large percentage of the population was undereducated, like mostly the population is about as educated as some of the best educated. Mm. So I guess like before we could buy additional researchers by doing kind of baseline education interventions for people who didn't have or who weren't getting nearly as good educations. And then you... Lots of people weren't going to high school. So there was exactly. a lot of learning fruit by just getting people yeah. to uh, just yeah, go learn people to the high basic school. stuff. And then you have like, there were so many people who weren't educated that you just like get new people with much higher ability to have insight. Um, mm. And that's like a pretty, pretty cheap intervention. But now additional education, first of all, probably just gets you fewer returns. Mm. So like sending people for a PhD relative to college probably buys you fewer insights per additional year of education. And then also just most people are getting about as much education as they want. I think in the US, like average number of years of schooling or like the average person ends their edu- formal education around 21 or 22. Wow. Just like it's quite, because like a substantial number are doing degrees. Right. Uh, like the, you know, number of people dropping out of high school is fairly low. Some, yeah. And, plen- and a non-trivial number are doing you know, postgraduate work. Totally, right. Uh, so if the government were like, we want more experts, it'd be yeah. like, Starting from a really high point. Yeah. How many How many of those people who are not doing PhDs are like interested on the margin right. of doing PhDs? Yeah. 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 Do you know of other reasons? 
those may be the the main ones. Mm-hmm. Um, oh, I guess like, like one one reason why it might be that uh, it seems like technological progress has slowed down the last forty years. It could just be this issue that it's getting harder to find useful stuff that, that we haven't already thought of. Some other people people have suggested other reasons, like they think we're doing science grant funding much worse than we were before. Right, that right. you know we used to fund people, you know, young people with exciting ideas. These days, it's so bureaucratized that yeah. we basically only fund older, mature scientists who yeah. are maybe not as innovative as they were when they, they were in their twenties or thirties. Right, um, and so like theories or ways of thinking about things that are that are misguided take longer yeah. to be to be overturned yeah that makes sense yeah i have heard some arguments like that like about patent structures mm. and how disincentivizing that is yeah yeah but whatever it is i suppose the question is uh will it change yeah like, like if the trend is towards more bureaucratized science funding uh it might just be that we won't fix that right, and right. it will just get worse over time so that could make things even even more sclerotic yeah that's true yeah and then i guess there's room for disagreement here, but I expect it will change. I expect that there are still lots of gains from technology, especially AI, that are going to make new knowledge insights much cheaper or something mm. to buy. But I guess if you if you don't, mm. then then maybe you you should be more worried than me. Mm. Yeah, well, at, at some point, we're surely going to have a have an episode about this stagnation mm-hmm. and kind of progress studies, a nice. cluster, cluster of thinking. So we, we can deal with this properly. Uh, cool. then. I guess one thing I, I always want to point out to people who think that we're currently stagnant economically or technologically, yeah. to say global GDP growth has actually been fine. It's just that it's mostly happening through catch-up growth. So mm-hmm. we're seeing like lots of growth in countries like China, uh, right. Vietnam, Bangladesh, and so on. And the way they're achieving economic progress is by scaling up what we already knew how to do. More, more of that rather than inventing new stuff. And I guess that maybe means that we should be worried that we're not inventing new things. So eventually they'll hit the kind of technological frontier and then they'll get stuck as well. Right. But I think it's plausible that there's been basically a redirection of effort away from inventing new things towards bringing up all of these countries that were far away from the technological frontier mm-hmm. and just needed to, to you know, build up the institutional ability, build up the technological know-how in order to like get, and that was all that was necessary to get much richer. Uh-huh. And given that there was so much low-hanging fruit there in just the catch-up right. stuff, maybe there wasn't as much pressure to be yeah. coming up with uh, completely new in, new inventions. And so right. possibly as these countries, as like more and more places get as rich as we know how it, uh, for humans to be, Right. Uh, with our current level of technology, we could see that stagnation reverse. Right, right, right. Where the next lowest hanging fruit mm. is back to being thinking of new ideas. Yeah. I mean, it seems like China's getting to this point to some extent where mm-hmm, mm-hmm. they're now like quite, I mean, at least large parts of it are very wealthy, mm-hmm. like very technologically advanced in many mm-hmm. ways, superior, I think, to mm-hmm. places like the UK or US. And that means that those places are motivated. The people who are there, like the best and brightest in China are now potentially motivated to be inventing new things in order to build new companies rather than right. doing transfer uh, learning. Right. Yeah, that makes sense to me. I guess we'll have Will on to talk about this book uh, when, nice. when it comes out so, so he can discuss how likely he thinks these, these different scenarios are. Maybe one that I'm interested to pull on and possibly do a different interview on is this question of should we expect solar, wind, nuclear, possibly geothermal, other green technologies to be integrated into the grid rapidly? Mm. I feel like I'm... My intuition is to be very optimistic, just looking at the at the price curve reductions, both mm-hmm. for those energy generation technologies and the energy storage. But there are smart people out there who are skeptical. They think mm-hmm. there's going to be technological hurdles that will slow it down much more than people imagine. That like, you know, even though solar panels themselves are, are quite cheap, adding everything that we need to the grid and the storage and integrating it into how we actually use energy, given the intermittency, uh, could, be, could be quite challenging. So yeah, it'd be good to get to the bottom of that at some point. Yeah, uh, that's, yeah, yeah. A, that's, that, that's a question mark for me. Right. Uh, and not my area, but I look forward to the interview. <laughs> yeah. I guess if that's true, then we should be more worried about climate change right. on the margin because we could be massively polluting for, for a whole bunch longer. That sounds right. 
Okay, so I guess, yeah, we're going to move on from the extinction stuff completely now. That was the boom and bust climate change scenarios, which I guess are among the more plausible ways that, that things could go super wrong. So anything you want to say to maybe wrap up everything that we've been talking about the last few hours? Yeah, yeah, sure. So I guess overall, my takeaway is like lots of plausible scenarios, at least like on their faces, didn't seem to pan out. The climate change ones do seem more plausible to me, though, like you said, they've got lots of steps that themselves don't seem super likely. And then when you put them all together, the overall scenario still doesn't seem or seems even less likely, but like very much can't be ruled out. And I think it's a great reason to worry more about, especially like worst case scenario, climate change outcomes. Yeah. Okay, let's move on from all of this kind of dark, tragic stuff. On a totally different topic, you've got quite an interesting story about going out of your way to try to find and meet your biological father, which over the years I've heard fragments of, but not, but not the whole thing. Yeah, what's the historical setup there? Why hadn't you known your father and his family earlier on? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so my my mom grew up in Latin America and her parents were basically diplomats mm. and did some international development work. And so she she loved Latin America. She also like felt strong pulls toward altruism. Mm. And so in her 20s, well, she lived in Latin America at various points. And then she, when figuring out how she wanted to do good with her career, mm. um, she ended up becoming an immigration lawyer mm. um, in D.C., So she was working with asylum seekers from Central America to try to help them flee conflict. There was like loads of terrible conflicts in Mm. Central America in, yeah, in the like late 20th century. Mm. And so my father was actually one of those immigrants that had fled El Salvador. Mm. He was basically very, he was very much on the left in a country where the right was in power and causing a lot of, well, basically killing lots of people on the left or like disappearing them, as Mm. it was called. And so my father did things like read leftist newspapers over the radio from like closets so that he couldn't be found. And he sang, he was like a musician or like kind of a kind of an activist musician. So he'd like play concerts with songs that he'd written about basically like oppression mm. and how messed up the the government, the current government was. Mm. So he was just generally, I don't, I don't have a sense of like, yeah, I think he thought of himself as very much an activist trying to push back against, against the really oppressive government. Mm. And he started getting threats. And at one point I think was pulled into a van and had his clavicle broken Mm. and was basically being threatened. And so he fled the country. Yeah. My, the like canonical story in my family is that he fled the country with a hundred dollar bill or maybe it was a $20 bill in his shoe. And yeah. And basically went through Guatemala and Mexico to get to the U S where he crossed illegally. And so then needed asylum help. Yeah. Which he got from my mom, who then, yeah, also just they just fell in love. Yeah. Um, when I was a toddler, I think the main thing it came down to was I had really different parenting styles, where I think he had like a very authoritarian parenting style. Mm. And that just really bothered my mom. So they separated and then soon after divorced. Mm. And so after I was about two, yeah, I just didn't have contact with him. He I think pretty soon after that felt safe going back to El Salvador. Mm. Um, He also just like didn't have 
many connections in the US. And so it was like very hard for him living there. So he went back and for reasons I don't totally understand, didn't keep in touch. So my understanding is that my mom really encouraged him to stay in touch. Mm. So I think my like kind of conjectury understanding of what he's like as a person is like, he's very present. He's very like, I don't know if he's impulsive, but he's very, he's like passionate and driven and cares a lot about people in his immediate proximity. Hmm. And then I think not in proximity, he's less conscientious and attentive or something. Yeah. Which good at a party, but like maybe not, not going to get back to you really quickly on WhatsApp. Totally. Yes. (laughs) That's my impression. Yeah. Um, Yeah. So my mom actually remarried when I was five or six and my stepdad was amazing Mm. and loving and I had a really happy childhood, but I did have this kind of angsty. I think I just like, it was just kind of interesting to think that like I had this El Salvadoran parent who was like, I mean, a big part of my genetics Mm. and a big part of my mom's history. And it'd been there the first few years as well. Yeah, yeah, true. Yeah. And that I had a bunch of siblings because he'd had a bunch of kids before meeting my mom. And then I actually had more kids after meeting my mom. Mm. So there's just this world of genetic linkages that existed. And I found that really interesting. And I did have this like, well, why didn't he reach out? Mm. Um, Feeling that really didn't cause me many issues, especially with like two loving parents that were very present. But like, I don't know when, when like escalated over time. Yeah. And like, I could, I don't know. I could like, when I gave it some thought, I was like, that's kind of sad and did kind of want an explanation. Yeah. So I guess over time, the motivation to go and find your dad grew. What was around the age when you decided to actually take action? Yeah. So it was really opportunistic. I'd always been drawn to Latin America in part because I, um, my first language was Spanish because of Joaquin. And so that was just easy and convenient place to travel. And then I guess just also this mythology just made Latin America really appealing and especially Central America. And so when I went to college, I had a vision of studying abroad Mm. in Central America. So I chose a program basically just on this basis, Mm. which ended up really kind of predicting a lot or like leading to a lot of other things. Like Mm. it was a sociology program. And I don't think I would have studied sociology if I hadn't gone on this program. But um, anyway, so this program was in Guatemala. I knew Guatemala was a neighbor of El Salvador. And I I don't know if I had a great sense of how quick it would be to get there. I think I did. I think I like noticed at some point like, oh, a bus would be six hours to El Mm. Salvador where my father lives. Mm. That's crazy to think about. Usually he's been like in another universe. So I kind of like sat on that. I also just started looking for them all on Facebook, which I'd never thought of before. Mm. Um, Since my father and then any of my siblings, because I, yeah, I like knew their names and thought maybe I'd recognize them. And I even found my sister, Febe, Mm. who's like kind of close to my age. She was four years older. And messaged her and just never heard back. Hmm. So I was like, oh no, maybe this isn't, yeah. Or just like, maybe this is doomed. Um, At this point, are you in Guatemala? Yeah, I'm in Guatemala. And I'm just like, I think it's just triggered by the fact that I'm so close. I'm Hmm. just like thinking a lot about this. And yeah, so I thought maybe I'd get in through my sister. She didn't respond. Hmm. So then I decided maybe I just go try to go to the place that my mom lived there with him. Yeah. Did your uh, did your family back in the US suspect anything at all? Or were they completely yeah. clueless about this? 
So I actually did tell my mom and then kind of soon after tell my stepdad, Jim. Mm. And I thought really hard about how I wanted to tell him and try to make it really clear that I feel loved. I feel like I have a dad. Um, There's just this other mystery thing that Mm. I'd like to learn more about. This is before you went to... Yes, before I went. This was like, I'm considering doing this. I also kind of want my mom's help. Um, So I guess I have to tell you. Yeah, yeah. But did try to be really sensitive. And yeah, they were like... I think they were like, this is both a terrible idea, but also totally get why you would want to do it. And it's not so, a place to stop you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So kind of libertarian about it. And um, yeah, I think I think they I think my mom especially like appreciated the like, yeah, she's got an adventurous side to her. Mm. So she I think was like, Yeah, this will be an experience. I don't yeah. know if it'll be good or bad, but yeah, you're welcome to have it. So, so yeah, tell us about the day or the week where you tried to go do it. Yeah. Well, so I really had no idea. I never asked much about where he lived or where he and my mom had lived together. I knew that they'd spent some time in El Salvador and I knew that my mom was pretty connected to his family or like had been. So I asked her, well, I asked her if she had an address Yeah, and she was like, phone number or something. Yeah. Well, yeah. And her response was basically like, they don't have addresses in the town Uh, (laughs) where Uh we would have lived and they don't, I mean, maybe they have. Maybe they have phones, but they this would have been the early 90s. And yeah. I don't think my grandmother would have had a phone. Big phone user. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, um, so I was like, can you tell me where they live? And she was like, not really, but I can describe it. Hmm. So she basically pulled up Google Maps and we used the street, street uh, view. Street view, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And she was like, oh, I recognize this church. Hmm. I think it's in this neighborhood. I recognize that this looks out onto a lake. Mm. It's like kind of like a cliff onto a lake. And I think it was one of these streets and it had a turquoise door. Mm. Um, So I was like, okay, I can, that's, it's not a very big town. Hopefully they haven't repainted. Exactly. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I was kind of, I was writing a lot on them not repainting. Yeah. But so I took a bus, went to the town it was actually just shockingly easy once I got there. Huh. I like immediately saw the church. I'm like the first street I went down, I saw a blue door or the mm. turquoise door. Yeah. Um, and there was an old woman in the door mm. and there was someone walking down the street. And I think I asked them, do you happen to know if this is where this person lives? And they're like, that's her right there. Yeah. Um, so that is how I met my that's grandmother. Your grandmother. Okay, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. And as soon as I walked up, I guess she was confused for like 30 seconds. Yeah. And then I kept saying my name and my mom's name and Joaquin's name. Hmm. And then she pulled out like stacks of photo albums of me. <laughs> oh, um, wow. Really? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. As a toddler and was just like really moved. Yeah. How did, how did she react? What, what, she was happy to see you. She was like, really yeah. happy to see me. Hmm. Yeah. Um, she like thought she never would Mm. and she really was close to my mom while she and my mom and my dad were together Mm. so she wanted to hear all about her and so this was your grandmother's house my grandmother's house yeah um were there other people living there you also got to meet this sounds like i don't know it sounds like quite an awkward situation in a way (laughs) yeah (laughs) yeah yeah yeah. no it was super awkward um and part of me was like why am i doing this This (laughs) just really uncomfortable um and I mean, it was uncomfortable. It's not like we had like loads In of common. natural oh. conversation flowing. Yeah. It was like we had a couple of people that we both knew that were, mm. I mean, like genetically linked. She knew my mom well. There wasn't quite a language barrier. I mean, I spoke Spanish and so did she, but her native yeah. language was an indigenous one. Oh, right. 
well, Salvadorians have such strong accents. I find it so hard to follow a Salvadorian totally. Spanish. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 Uh, yeah. And yeah, I mean, we just like kind of struggled mm. and like had an awkward couple of meals together. Yeah. Um, but she was living alone. She like remarried and lived with her partner okay. um, who was yeah. lovely, who yeah. was actually like really, really lovely and happy I was there and... But presumably you're still interested to meet your yes. dad, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So she spent, she like had his phone number on like a, like a crummy little cell phone. Mm. And we spent the day trying to call him mm. and like kind of on brand, he was super <laughs> hard to get a hold of. <laughs> uh, yeah. So she knew the town he was living and like yeah. probably they saw each other a couple times a year, but he was like a good four hours away. But what year was this, by the way? I'm trying to imagine oh, yeah. what technology we've got here. Yes. Yeah. So this is 20... 14. Yeah. Yeah. So I was 20. Mm. And yeah, I mean, they're also just like, they're poor. So like, I had a lovely... It went on iMessager. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So she got in touch with him. And yeah, he he asked to meet... He basically agreed to meet halfway mm. at like a little fast food restaurant. Mm. And he... Yeah, it was also just like extremely awkward. But um, <laughs> yeah, he... What did you talk about? Well, I don't... I... Yeah, what do you say first? It's like, hey, I'm your daughter. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It was really, really strange. Yeah. Um, well, first of all, he like wrote up he was a total stranger to you. Yeah. Totally. You, you weren't a total stranger to him. He, he had met you, but yeah, it's been a while. It's been a minute. <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. Before I had conscious thoughts, really. Yeah. So, yeah, he he was like, what was the first thing? I think it's funny. You like don't say things like, I'm your daughter, you're my father. You yeah. say like, hey, how was your trip getting here? Mm. Like, do you want to order food? Yeah, yeah. Which is like, in some ways, bizarre. Mm. Got to start somewhere. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, we basically, he seemed, he was just like really interested in what my life was like mm. and really interested what how my mom was. Yeah. I mean, it was a lot of like, how how is everyone doing? Mm. He had remarried and had really young children. Mm. So he had an eight-year-old and, and he would have been mid-50s at this point. Or yeah, maybe 50s. late 50s. Oh, late 50s. Because okay. he was a decade older than my mom. Right. Yeah. yeah, okay. Yeah, I think he was on, I think this was his like ninth child. Mm. So, yeah, what what else did we talk about? He, he lived a full life, I guess. <laughs> he did live a very full life. <laughs> yes, very full and Catholic life without, mm. yeah, without birth control. Was yeah. he still political? Yeah, he Did was super political. That? that seems like it could have been a common interest. Yes, yeah. yeah. So it totally was. Altruism in general was a common interest. Mm. Um, at that time, I think I was planning to go into international development mm. and he was clearly really proud. Mm. Um, so that was a really good feeling. Yeah. Yeah, I guess it both was a good feeling. And then also, yeah, I like realized I cared a bit less about what he thought than I expected. Yeah. I was like... Yeah, I definitely am more glad that my stepdad is proud of me than I am that he's proud of me. Yeah. But I think there was something like he and I really share altruism mm. and trying to make the world better. And we think about it really differently. Um, but like, I really valued knowing that like he has intense empathy. But so, yeah, he he rode a motorcycle to meet up with me. And so then he he invited me back to stay with him and his wife for a few days, which I did. So I rode on the back of his motorcycle and met them. And I mean, it was just a lot of small talk. Mm. It was like a bit harder to go deeper. There were a couple of things in common, like my mom and my life and his life. And I really liked meeting his wife and daughter. They were really, really sweet. So like the most serious stuff we talked about then was probably like, 
Like we really cared about how our lives had gone mm. and how everyone in them was doing. Mm. And we kind of cared to some extent, not superficially, but kind of shallowly about altruism. Mm. But a lot of it was awkward. Yeah, um, I imagine. We just were strangers. Yeah, did you find uh, you had to do like similarities, or like common, yeah. similar, I don't know, uh, what do you call mannerisms and so on? Yeah, actually, yeah. I mean, we look identical. Okay. <laughs> so the very the first picture we have together as adults is mm. just like uncanny. Yeah, it's a bit it's a bit disturbing because mm. people have always told me I look like my mom, but we just were identical. Yeah, I don't know about mannerisms. He was like he had some kind of effective altruism ish mm. ways of thinking. Mm. So like he he like talked a lot about effective and ineffective ways of doing political advocacy mm. and kind of about cost effectiveness. Huh. He didn't use that language, yeah. but he was basically like, he was like, this works a bit better, but per resource, basically, mm. like it's it looks worse. Mm. Um, he's pretty rational. Yeah, I guess I feel like I get something like, I do feel like I get a lot from my mom, but I kind of wondered where something like maybe curiosity and ambition came from and he seemed like kind of romantically curious and mm. like intrinsically driven to learn things yeah he was only educated through primary school but basically later on got a high school diploma and was better read than i was including in english mm. that's which, impressive yeah really really impressive so i think it was something like it's not that it's not exactly that I was like, oh, that's where I get my curiosity from. It was more like, oh, it'd be nice. Mm. I'd like love to have that trait from him. Yeah. There are like some things I saw that I would be like proud to share. Yeah. Yeah. Did you connect with any of your sisters in particular? I suppose so you had eight of them. Oh, yeah, sorry. I did. So eight brothers and sisters. Yeah. 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 So soon after that, I connected with, I actually only ended up connecting with a sister and brother hmm. um, who I'd actually lived with for like my first year or something. My sister was living with my mom and my, and Joaquin while they were together. So her name is Pepe. And yeah, she She's actually. She's the one who didn't reply, right? She didn't reply okay, at first, yeah. um, but through kind of everyone else that I did meet, um, mm. we got her phone number and she was thrilled to hear from me, wanted to meet up. I ended up staying with her for more like a week. And she's actually like, yeah, she's actually a, like a more, it's very, it feels like more of like a win. Mm. Um, so we like, we met soon after, just immediately, we just were very good friends. Mm. And she's got like, really cool views and is like an advocate for basically she's like very feminist and she's like an advocate for women being allowed to have abortions which is like extremely politically charged in El Salvador mm. and yeah I was just like you're so cool <laughs> um, and is also very well read in like feminist literature and and she speaks English and Spanish so we had even more fluent conversations yeah yeah, yeah. um well, so she was just she like replied? I guess she hadn't seen yeah, the message. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I, so I I'm asked suggesting, her. Had, had it gone to like the, was it the Facebook Messenger, like a spam filter thing? Because you guys weren't friends already. Exactly. Yeah, okay, yeah. Right, yeah. Classic, So as soon classic. as we were friends, she was like, oh my God, I now see I can message see the message now. now. Yeah. yeah. She actually was really emotional that mm. um, she hadn't seen it earlier. Because I think there's like a four month gap or something. Mm. Which I guess isn't that long in the scheme of things. But yeah, um, listeners, go out and check the. Uh, you can you can find instructions <laughs> on Google for how to find this uh, special totally. in inbox that Facebook hides from you because it thinks that uh, it's like spammy messages because it's people you're not already connected with. But yeah. I think it produces this pretty often, where it's like someone's yeah. trying to reconnect with someone who they don't have other social connections with, and exactly. Facebook is like, nope, <laughs> nope, sorry, you're you're a bot. Yeah. Um. 
Yeah. So she and I just really get on and we still do. And we're in regular touch. And I haven't visited her, obviously, in the past few years because of the pandemic. But Mm. before that, we visited each other every few years. She came to my college graduation. And yeah, I feel very close to her. So that was a huge win. My father. Yeah. Basically, as soon as I left, it kind of fell back into like, if you're not there, he's not a very good communicator. Yeah. Yeah. So we weren't in touch again, but I did feel like I had this like, cool. I know what he's like. I know where he is. If Mm. I really needed to, I could probably get in touch now. I do have his phone number and email. Mm. It might be kind of hard, but I didn't really try, which felt fine. And he didn't really either, which also felt fine. Um, And then he ended up again being kind of threatened by, I think this time it was not the government, but it was more gangs in his city. Hmm. Um, so so it's less political? Or, yeah. Uh, I mean, it's probably yeah. kind of all interconnected. Hmm. But yeah, it was it was more like gang violence in El Salvador has been hmm. getting really bad. Yeah, And so he again tried to seek asylum in the US, hmm. reached out to me to see if I could help. And so we were kind of reconnected that way. And he did end up moving to California wow. uh, a few years ago. And I've, I saw them once. And actually, this is when I think we, I think I did feel closer to him. We, so he um, brought his family as well? Yeah. He did. He mm. brought his wife, his daughter, and his new baby. But so I did see them. We went and took a hike in a Redwood Park. I forget which one. And yeah, this time, I think, yeah, I don't know what was different but we did talk about some more deep things. It's kind of interesting because his wife is super religious. And I don't know to what extent they've discussed this, but he asked me in English, she was like, do you believe in God? Mm. And I was like, not really, but I believe in doing good. And like, that motivates me a lot. Mm. And he was like, yeah, I once read that God is the opiate of the masses. (laughs) And I was, yeah, I just feel like I just learned a lot about how I mean, really well-read he was, Mm. how non-traditional some of his views were relative to the, like, social environment he was in. Like, I think think he wouldn't have said that to his wife. Yeah. Um, yeah. Sounds like that might not be prudent. (laughs) Yeah, exactly, exactly. Um, So I think he's actually just kind of of rogue and, like, thinks for himself or something. Yeah, non-conformist, like you said. And, yeah, we did talk more just about philosophies. We talked about effective altruism. Mm -hmm. He thought it sounded great. Cool. Um, yeah. Got to get him to listen to the show. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> His English must be pretty good, I guess. It is like, pretty good. good. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it got a bit worse, but it's, it's still pretty good. And he still like reads and yeah. So it's like good enough to read complicated books in English. Yeah. Um, pues, hola, Joaquin. Espero que llegues a este punto del programa. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Hola. Yeah, that's uh, it's it's an amazing story. Uh, it's, uh, thanks so much for sharing it. I'm sure. glad to hear it all, uh, all that out uh, yeah. at once. Uh, pretty good outcome. All right, we've we've, uh, we've covered a lot of ground, and it's time to time to come to the end. But yeah, I guess I suppose one final personal question Kieran and I had for you is: I guess you're working at eighty thousand hours now. But uh, if you had to completely change careers and you, you gave up all of this altruism, that business that you've been interested in for so long became indifferent to making the world a better place. What would be the most self indulgent or most personally enjoyable career for you to pursue in place of all of that? Yeah, yeah, I actually totally have an answer for this. Yeah. And I kind of fantasize about doing as much good as I can. And then like in my retirement or something, retraining as a therapist. Ah. I find 
my own therapy with my two therapists. (laughs) Um, Really fascinating. Like just look forward to it, get tons out of it and have read just loads of books on mostly like cognitive behavioral therapy, but also some like more like psychotherapy stuff. And I basically just find it really basically fun to talk to people about, I guess, I guess it's often like things that are going wrong and could be going better. Mm. Um, But also just about like how they work, what their like thought patterns are like, what parts of their personality are driving tiny behaviors. Um, Just find it really, really interesting. And then, yeah, find it very kind of emotionally satisfying to Mm. sometimes help people challenge negative thought patterns or yeah, reframe, reframe negative parts of their lives or something. Yeah. Um, I guess that makes sense. You're building a very deep connection with a stranger quite suddenly. And I guess yeah. it's also very curiosity arousing and you get to kind of solve the puzzle of the things that are yeah. going right and wrong in their life. And it's uh, super puzzly. Yeah, yeah. I find that, I find that bit really satisfying when someone feels like understood about something that varies a lot between people, you just, you kind of feel like, I don't know, a magician. Mm. They seem to really get a lot out of that. Do you think most therapists enjoy their work? I feel like, I guess my, my intuition had been that therapists are dealing with heavy stuff a lot of the mm-hmm. time. And like, if I was a therapist, I'd probably need a bunch of therapists to help me deal with the heavy nature of the subject matter. Yeah, I can imagine that it would be really hard. I think I like more than lots of people help my friends process things that are hard about their lives mm. and do sometimes find that really tiring. I think I probably would work really well with some types of clients. Like, I don't know if it's weird to say, but like, I think working with someone like me who's motivated and introspective would probably just, well, who knows? I could be saying this and then be really disappointed, Mm. but I, I would expect that that would just feel more motivating if someone is like motivated to make progress. I imagine I'd have a really hard time working with clients who weren't sure that things in their life could be improved. Mm. Yeah, I guess I'm probably also underestimating how hard it is to talk about the most traumatic of things. Mm. Maybe that would be, maybe that would be much harder to do on the day to day. I know that the therapists I work with cap the number of sessions they have per day um, at like two or three. It's quite draining. Yeah. Really emotionally intense. Yeah. Well, yeah, I imagine you uh, you make a great therapist. And I Aww, suppose if you, <laughs> if you ever take it on more seriously, I imagine you'll become even better. Oh, that's really, really kind. Yeah, maybe in 40 years. Yeah, yeah, I guess it doesn't feel like much of a retirement plan, but I suppose it could be a, <laughs> it could be a, great, a great thing to dedicate your time to once you uh, yeah, feel like you've, <laughs> you've, done, yeah. you've, you've done, the, done the most good in the core part of your career. Yeah. My guest today has been Louisa Rodriguez. Thanks so much for coming on the 80,000 Hours podcast, Louisa. Thanks for having me. It's really fun. Okay, you're already three and a half hours into this one. So why not stick around a minute more for me to mention some other 80,000 hour services you might well find useful. First off, the 80,000 hours team has been releasing a lot of new and updated pages on the website lately, including a report on China related AI safety and governance paths, as well as the post Be More Ambitious, a rational case for dreaming big if you want to do good. You can find our new written work at 80,000hours.org slash latest or sign up to get email updates about our latest research every few weeks at 80,000hours.org slash newsletter. Second, our job board currently has 676 available vacancies and study opportunities across all the various problem areas that we discuss on this show and including some for undergraduates as well as some for people who are already well into their careers. There's more remote roles than in the past, I think 147 as I'm recording this, which might make it easier to find relevant options if you're not living in a major US or UK city already. 
You can check out those roles and filter them down to options that might be right for you at 80,000hours.org slash jobs. Finally, there's our advising team who are speaking with more people than ever about how they can have more impact with their work. The service is free, of course, and you can find out what our advisors can and can't do for you and apply to speak with us at 80,000hours.org slash speak. All right, the 80,000 Hours podcast is produced and edited by Kieran Harris. Audio mastering is by Ben Cordell. Full transcripts and an extensive collection of links to learn more are available on our site and put together by Katie Moore. Thanks for joining. Talk to you again soon.